Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Talk Recorded live. Hello, this is Michael Adams, and it's nothing but the truth. One man's journey to find it. It is September the 8th, 2015, and... Uh, we have was uh, we uh, we he he's known by Luminous Arcada Arcana, also known Arcana. as Dave Arcana. Excuse me if I pronounce it right. Our <laughs> uh, Dave and uh, he has a, a talk show show called Out of Darkness into the Light. And if we just go back here real fast, and he also has a second one which is Out of Darkness into Light to A. And let's read a little bit here before we get going. Description of the show, Religion and Spirituality. As the category description is, this talk uh, cast places a unique emphasis on deep theology and heavy conspiracy. And he's not kidding. And... Um, well, we'll discuss a diverse array of topics such as biblical theology, revisionist history, uh, conspiracy facts and theories, media fakery, hoaxes and symbolism, uh, symbolism, contemporary events, alternative health and science, comparative religion and non-Christian cults, as well as discussion of occult and quote, New Age, end of quote, beliefs and practices from a biblical biblical perspective. Our podcast can be found at the following links as well as iTunes, which has better sound quality, and then it has HTTPS. Um, you, know, you know, I'll just we'll go over to that. My eyes up. Uh, players. FM slash series slash out of darkness into. Uh, looks like is, is that it? That's available. They got a, a great site. Okay. Uh, player FM. Okay, go ahead. That. Yeah, they got a yeah. number of them out there. I, I I have links to some of them, but. Uh, okay. Anyways, you can find more of it, the, the links that he has uh, on if you go to out of darkness into light. I'm sorry if I'm sluggish and slow right now, Dave. I will pick up here in a little bit. I'm just uh, had my son for seven days as well while moving, so he's uh-huh. finally with his mom. So, uh, needless to say, after hanging out, I love my son, but four year old for seven days, my brain is mush. Okay, uh, biography. It says here uh, I have been a full time researcher since 1992. I am a generalist. But my primary focus is on systematic theology. And tell me if you agree with this definition of systematic theology, Dave. It's a form of theology in which the aim 
is to arrange religious truths in a self-consistent whole. Yeah. They're basically doing what philosophers did earlier. They always want to categorize and grade uh, knowledge qualitatively and quantitatively, you know, put it in categories. There's actually a value in that, but that's mainly a Western emphasis. Do that well, my first, my first question I want to ask you, you say you've been a researcher for, uh, looks like 23 years now. Um, full-time, yeah. What does that mean, that full-time researcher? Well, the reason I say that is because if you say you're full-time researcher today, people generally assume or at least get suspicious that you may be unemployed. <laughs> there's a lot sure. of full-time researchers out there right now. But there's a whole backstory to that. I've never actually given my uh, testimony, and I, I really need to do that. But God actually sent people to me uh, to confirm me in that because I was working just like anybody else. And I had to take uh, basically what is a risk and uh, – you know, quit that uh, assuring job that I have there and leap off the end of the cliff and uh, and allow God to provide for me. And he's actually done that faithfully uh, since 1992. And for two decades, I never had to actually ask for any money. <laughs> and uh, that is generally going to tell you that um, either I'm a show on a payroll <laughs> yeah. or, uh, or God is helping me. I actually had a guy that... Um, you know, you put these labels on people. I, uh, I I believe that he was a prophet myself, but that's difficult to absolutely prove. But um, he was actually down in California, and God spoke to him. I only saw him occasionally, maybe only three or four times before that, and told him to come all the way up to uh, western Washington and confirm me in this new calling. And he didn't even have a car. And so this guy came up here and... Um, he gave me this passage in First Corinthians, uh, excuse, whoa, um, First Kings 17. It's talking about Elijah, you know, living at the brook and being uh, miraculously fed by, you know, ravens, and uh, he's obviously living off the brook. They're drinking water, and God, you know, provided for him on a regular basis, and um, God really impressed that scripture upon my heart. But I took it literally. And assumed that I, because I'm a you know backpacker and a mountain climber, that I was going to go off into the wilderness because <laughs> it was the right time of year to do that. God was going to test me, you know, like Moses or John the Baptist or something like that. And uh, I used to have this um, experience, which I still have today, but it's different, where I would get uh, like a witness in my abdomen. I've had other people around me that are relatively gifted to have the same thing. And there was a t- there was times, not always, where I could ask a simple question, and actually feel the presence of the Holy Spirit, like a yes or no question. I mean, this is not yeah. kind of spooky to some people, but because that had happened to me before, I took up this map because I had this general feeling that God wanted me to go to what's called the Olympic Peninsula. And the moment that I picked it up, a friend called me and said that God had spoke to him and said that I was misunderstanding the passage, that it was not to be interpreted literally. It was just simply saying that God was going to provide for me. And in other words, I didn't have to go live somewhere else like Elijah did. <laughs> you know what I mean? That's how this whole thing got started. So I was working and what God did. He put me on my back. Uh, God does that with people sometimes literally, sometimes you know, figuratively. Uh, I couldn't work because I was injured. 
Mm-hmm. So that made me rethink things and slow down. And my boss never hired me back, so I really didn't have a choice. And I started off, and I had no money at all. And uh, anyway, as the years went by, I had a friend that provided for me mainly. And then he ran into financial problems. He actually had to quit his job because he couldn't afford to be a school teacher anymore. And um, But I told him to stop giving to me financially because it was starting to weigh on me. It didn't quite feel right. But I had no source of income. Okay, That very day, actually, probably I think within about five to eight minutes, my mother said that she would give me $300 a month. And um, <clears throat> I said, okay, because she instantly replaced what he was doing. I was able to go down for years and buy. I was living with my mother for 20 years. This is something that God set up, and it was a great setup. I mean, I was just thinking about this the other day, uh, about three days ago. And... Um, I had a huge amount of time to internalize information. That's what you have to do. That was very important in the ancient world, the time factor. Oh, this yeah. is why, uh, you know, you had elder statesmen that basically ran the show in every culture. And uh, they had acquired wisdom solely over time. There's a huge time factor. It takes time to gain knowledge and then apply it properly, which has to do with wisdom. And so... Um, that's how I got into this whole thing. I basically said, yes, there's a lot more to it. God actually spoke to me, and I hardly ever, ever heard God. I mean, I only heard him like three or four times in a decade. But there's a backstory about that. I was up in the mountains, and uh, I'll save the details. But um, I was isolated because I took off in the dark with a pack. My brother stayed behind. And I woke up, and um, I heard the voice of God. He said, will you suffer for me? And uh, I think I waited about 1.5 seconds, and I said yes. And after that, uh, I was plunged into suffering. When I came down from the mountain, um, there was a death in the family. And um, basically, I've been suffering ever since. In fact, there's a guy on Facebook that is asking me, um, have you come out of the, uh, the dark night of the soul? Because as years went by, I started to notice that I had these parallels with these medieval Catholic mystics, somewhat curiously, who Mm -hmm. talked about the uh, dark night of the soul. And just to bring this around for a Protestant Christian, to most of our audience, uh, this actually influenced Methodism, which influenced the holiness movement in the 19th century, which came out of Methodism, and strongly influenced early 20th century Pentecostalism, which, of course, later influenced, whether good or bad, you know, the 1960s charismatic movement and other uh, theoretically aberrant groups like, you know, Latter Rain movement and all that good stuff, and the third wave, and, uh, and you know, it starts to deteriorate as you go along. Sure. But um, the Methodist Church was um, had a lot of common on, commonalities with Anglicanism. It was started by uh, John Wesley, but, see, he was actually... Uh, Thanks to his mother, Susanna, they had a very large family. But she was educating her children by having them read devotional works from these um, the Catholic uh, spiritual writers. They're all famous, you know. And uh, most Christians have never been exposed to this thing. And uh, there's a curious book out there called The Imitation of Christ by a guy named Thomas Akempis. And that book 
in my opinion, appears to have some kind of um, unction on it. Because um, I used to just pick it up and open it up, and God would speak to me. You know, you, you see this kind of thing in the Bible. It happens to everybody, you know. God will speak to you through his word. Sometimes when you just open it up. And I've got some stories about that kind of thing, you know. And um, because there's a, there's a tendency out there uh, to look at Roman Catholicism as if there's nothing good there at all. And it's such a vast arena of so many things. I mean, there's actually like sub-religions and cults within the umbrella system of Roman Catholicism, you know. And there's so many great historical figures that, uh, I mean, some people would class, classify Augustine, you know, as a Roman Catholic. Um, I wouldn't necessarily, but... Uh, so, you know, I mean, um, it's just like in Judaism. I mean, where there's this tendency to say the Protestants are always right and the Catholics are always wrong and Christians are always right and the, the Jews are always wrong. Well, that would mean that they never have anything right uh, that you don't have. And, uh, it'd be difficult to prove that. I don't believe in that personally. Anyway, I over the years, I... I've, uh, I've come to realize... That all of them have, it's pretty much wrong. So, <laughs> mm-hmm. over the years, I uh, I started off with apologetics in the late '80s. This started in like '92, and uh, I threw everything I had into that, and I developed very rapidly. I had to be at one time, probably you know, top five easily experts on the West Coast on Jehovah's Witnesses wasn't quite as good as Mormonism. I used to completely devastate them in a few minutes. They had no answers whatsoever. Because I had um, I had their books. So I basically entrapped them with certain questions, which they would fall for, like taking the bait. And then I would produce... Um, things are different, by the way. Uh, they're a lot more sophisticated today because of the Internet. These are Jehovah's Witnesses that had not even heard of these false prophecies, if you assume they're even a prophecy. Cause not, I mean, I'm not saying that all of them necessarily were. But um, I'd give them a photocopy, and they just kind of smile, you know. And then I said, well, would you agree that the Watchtower organization actually is a false prophet? Because that's what they claim. They don't claim there's any individual prophets. The organization itself functions as a prophet. And they took that every time. And then I sunk them by showing them the, uh, the text in one of their old books, which they had never looked at. They can only... Um, Unless they've made changes, the last I heard, they can only look at them through, uh, you know, a glass case. <laughs> mm. There's probably a reason why. <laughs> you know what I mean? Sure. And they had. Sure. There's no. I mean, there's no answer. And nobody, nobody tried to answer. They were completely devastated, and so they would take their little satchels and look at each other. And they always tell you that you know we're going to come back, and they never ever came back. You know. And so I realized that I could do that, you know, very easily. It was basically child's play if you're sufficiently prepared. And so it's not about winning the argument. Um, it's how you present the information. Because, the, you know, the goal is always to gain the soul, you know, not to slap somebody across the face or back them into a corner. You know what I mean? Sure. So I changed in my view of apologetics over the years. And you can see that when you listen to me on the show because uh, – Actually, last night we got in the heated debate, but we have, I've never done that um, since we've been doing podcasts in the uh, latter part of 2011, except for one time when I was flat on my back and there was a lady 
who claimed that um, the Lord showed her that I needed to get off my back <laughs> and get engaged on talk show because they had a guy that uh, was basically a new ager in there, and he was saying all kind of crazy stuff. And I was just uh-huh. listening to him with kind of amused look on my face. So um, I engaged him, and then my, my other friend kind of finished him off. He was making the claim that there was um, a sentient being, which is actually like a biological computer, that was running the show and that there was no God. So he was kind of a curious form of uh, atheist, and that's why I was just kind of listening to him and just going, whoa, <laughs> this is interesting, you know. <laughs> sure. Yeah. Yeah. So, so uh, when you started your show, how long ago was that? Was it two years ago? Was it? Uh, back in 2011, years? I believe. Okay. Um, your motive was what? Well, actually, like, was we like were a ministry. Just, was it? Uh, no, we actually. Um, there's a big story about the whole ministry thing. Um, we had a, a small group of people just sent. God sent some people to me, I and mean, that's that's what everyone pretty much acknowledged. Because I didn't try. Uh, I'm not much of an activist or a promoter. <laughs> that's kind sure. of a short mean. And so these people were just sent to me. Some of them, you know, were female. And we just, um, a lady friend, she opened a uh, a Facebook group by the same name. She actually came up with the name of the podcast, not me. And, in fact, the podcast originally belonged to her. And then we had a room, too, who belonged to a female friend of ours. And I didn't even have one. That shows you that I'm deliberately being passive there. I may interpret that. I wasn't trying to do anything. But um, we started having some fun, you know, contacting people on Facebook and uh, texting them. And we wanted to talk to them. And so we were kind of looking around, well, you know, what's the best way to do this? And um, we actually decided on TalkShoe because we couldn't – we were having problems getting people on Skype. The neat thing about TalkShoe, you don't even have to create a you know, screen name. <laughs> just, no, you don't. It could just be guest one or guest two. Or there's whatever. nothing easier and just call uh-huh. right in. And it's amazing because I'm trying to get people on another program called Pal Talk, where only one person can be on there at a, uh, a time and a mic, and actually come over to talk to you and actually have a a real conversation instead of these little ego-driven speeches. It's amazing sure. how hard it is to get people to do that because there's nothing easier, you know. It is. It is. It's very interesting. My observation since doing this is that. I get a lot of downloads. I'm assuming I get a lot more listens. And hardly ever anybody's actually in the chat room when I'm doing a show. But then, I, you know, next thing you know, at the end of the week, you know. Are you on Facebook? I am. I got the show. It's the Nothing But The Truth. You can look at that off of Nothing But The Truth on TalkShoe.com. You find it on Facebook. And, okay. uh, uh I made a comment on Facebook about uh, I was trying to get a few people in the chat room because um, your show does not show up in the live now section. I know it doesn't. And, you know, I don't know about you, but um, when I did, I, I emailed and I looked at through the format, I guess you got to pay, and then they determine whether or not your show is worthy of being on there anyways. In other words, they say, I mean, did you read that? They, they say that it's no guarantee that they will actually put you up there. I see. So maybe they change things. And if you um, if you start a show that's newer, maybe they have a new policy, but they've been around for a while. Because they've never done that with me, you know. Yeah. 
And uh, mm. my impression on my show is, I think that it's, uh, well, they just don't like it. <laughs> well. I don't think they, I don't, you know, I don't think they like the topic that it better and et cetera. So. Yeah. So, yeah. Well, let me put it this way. Let's go off to a third party. Uh, there's uh, all these, you're probably aware of this, there's all these targeted individual shows on there. You know, as as well as um, you know, white nationalist type shows and stuff like that, we we disagree with maybe Christian identity, but um, they don't like them either, and uh, they don't show up in the live section. Although some of them do, some of them don't. You know what I mean? Yeah. So something's clearly going on there. <laughs> I I know since uh, the folks over at uh, ThinkOfBeBeat.com have decided to basically endorse me or support me uh-huh. that I've been getting a lot more people as far as downloads and that goes. But then again, I, you know, you and I, our format and our structure, the way we do it, we kind of go with the, whenever the time is right and when inspiration's right. And, and um, all the time I really have a set time uh, as far as during the day, like evening shows is when I have a guest. Yeah. Hopefully to be at their convenience, but I'm really not really. You know, be honest with you, I'm not really interested in the following. I know that sounds kind of arrogant, mm-hmm. um, but it's, uh, what I mean by that is I'm really grateful for the people that email me and follow me. I really am. It does kind of motivate you to keep on going, but it, it is called nothing but the truth. And you know, I always say one man's journey to find it. When I first started this show, the reason I brought up the ministry thing is you know when I first started this show uh, about a year ago now. Well, if not, um, it's pretty darn close to the day. It was about uh, ministry. You know what I mean? I I knew about Rome. I knew about the you know what I you know what I know is the biblical, historical, prophetic Antichrist about the Jesuits and I had a faith in Jesus Christ. And hooked up with guys like uh, Walt Stickle. You probably know of him from. Uh, or maybe you don't. I don't know. And. Um, Tom Fresh. Uh, what's he associated with? Uh, Grand Design Expose is the website, granddesignexpose.com. He's an excellent, excellent place for us to find information, especially about the connections of early, our early history in this country with uh, the Jesuits and, uh, you know, Washington, D.C. Oh, yeah. And, kind of, yeah. and yep. then Tom Fresh, he's got his show, and... Uh, you know, those guys, and then you know, also just hooked up with uh, First Amendment Radio somehow. You know how things work. You don't try. It just kind of happens, right? Uh-huh. Anyways, I didn't really want to do a show, but Tom uh, Walt Stickle encouraged me to do it. I was leaning heavily towards the way they were thinking. You know, it's kind of leaning towards this kind of Sabbatarian approach. And as time went on and I kept on doing my research, uh, <laughs> I started asking questions. And things started to fall. You know, they, they, you know, I would ask a question, and they would uh, no longer be there with me. You know what I mean? They said the silliest things. And so, as I've gone on at this, I started to realize that this really is just what it's about. It's really just my personal journey to find the truth. And that, as, as I as I keep on pursuing that, I lose a lot of company. <laughs> you know what I mean? And I know you know what I'm talking about because yeah, that can through some. Oh, it happens all the time, and it can happen. It happens all the time. So, 
And so what do you do about that? You know, you do is just, uh, you know, what's more important, you know? And so for me, that's what it's turned out to be. It's pretty much me sharing my journey with anybody who's interested to find the truth. So I don't, you know, it started out as like a personal ministry thing. Like I was going to serve the Lord, and now I realize it's a tool really that the Lord's using for me to serve me and wake me up and correct me of all the many errors, not only theologically, but how I see the world. You know, what I mean? you, know you call yourself uh, was it a vast conspiracist. Uh, deep uh, conspiracy. Deep conspiracy, you know. I don't we're really in the same boat in a lot of ways. You're a little further down that, that I guess, rabbit hole, if you will, bunny trails than I am. Only because you've been doing a lot longer, but we're, you know, we're pretty much falling in line with a lot of things. So. Yeah, I mean, anyway, I mean, I mean that it actually conspiracy? sounds extreme, but the reason is it's because they've manufactured a normalcy. Yeah. Well, life itself, I mean, once you start to get to the point, you realize... Well, that's what it's all about. It's a big giant conspiracy. <laughs> everywhere, everywhere you turn, Dave, there's a conspiracy. And you get to a point, it's like you're not really being radical at all. I mean, the rest of the world is feeding you that way, but you're just, you know, you're just seeing one more contradiction. Yeah, as you they turn another corner. The truth is what they've done by establishing a false normal. Oh yeah, absolutely. Well, it's a house of cards and a house of lies, and that's what it is all the way around. You know, it doesn't matter whatever uh, discipline you want to research, you're just going to find a, uh, one endless lie after another. Yeah, and, I believe uh, that our reality is largely an artificial construct that you can collapse. Well, well, that's interesting. Now, when you say that, are we talking about the physical world, or are we talking about actually the, everything? Everything at a significant level. Spiritual. Everything at a significant level. Everything. Well, uh, define that, what a significant level was to you. (laughs) uh, I use the word significant a lot because I try to define things uh, within narrow parameters to communicate more effectively. That's what, uh, because I've been influenced by the academic community. I didn't actually go to uh, seminary, um, and I think that I could have benefited from at some point, but I do believe that I would have came out of there with what I call an institutionalized mind. So I would have had to, you know, this is the language you use around here, deprogram myself to some degree, which you can do. Because I believe that your entire life you're actually deprogramming yourself. You don't do that as a child. You absorb propaganda without knowing it. A lot of it's from your parents. And at some point, um, the tide turns, and, you know, you have a wake-up call, and you start to look at uh, your reality from a different perspective. And you're, you're you're searching for truth as a child, but Can I ask you, you have problems like walking into a Christian bookstore. You don't have any knowledge. How are you going to buy a good book? You, you don't have any point of reference, so you have to follow someone, and that's the problem. The, the experts are your parents, <laughs> fortunately. Sure. Wait, you said you had a wake-up call. What was your specific, or do you have a specific wake-up call? Well, people moment. around me, when they An talk epiphany, about waking up... Epiphany, when you moment, you're like, whoa... The world's not quite the way I thought. So. Yeah, uh, your people use that. You know, they call it waking up. And I don't use that as much myself, but uh, mine was more of a gradual type thing. Uh, I just read a book by William Still called The New World Order, and okay. it's, uh, he claims to be a descendant of Patrick Henry. Now, this is a book that's available out there, uh, you know, in the big box bookstores. I'm a little <sighs> suspicious of it, also because he's a descendant of Patrick Henry. 
but it's an interesting book because it actually um, is looking at things from a intelligent conspiratorial perspective. For instance, he talks about Atlantis, and most Christians won't touch that with a ten-foot pole. But he does a very good job of speaking about it in an intelligent manner, you know, and, and throwing out some things that well, go, holy here, you know, maybe this is possible. A lot of the reactions we just get to that possibility is just the word Atlantis. If you use a different word, uh, then people don't react to it. They're reacting to a word. You know what I mean? Sure. Now, Maybe do, we don't do know much feel, about do, that do, subject. Do you, is your impression at this point uh, that Atlantis is a place or a concept and an idea? Uh, well, okay. when you listen to me, um, it's best to probably go through um, some initial uh, stages of um, almost like initiation. Because um, what I believe is so completely, there's really no point of reference. People don't have any point of reference because I'm saying that they have a false cosmology, and so they can't they can't even ponder Atlantis. But I can do it within the context of um, an ancient perspective, if you like. Well, oh, go not really that important yeah. subject, but oh, yeah, that's what you want to do. I just wanted to just. Well, um, you know, obviously there's all this speculation today about this flat Earth, and I think it's uh, artificial because they're, they're, the Illuminati was not pushing uh, flat Earth propaganda at any significant level. There's the word significant during the 20th century, or the first decade. And uh, somewhat curiously, that started early this year. <laughs> um, there were some things going on. Before that, they were priming the pump like they were getting ready. But um, let's let's theorize that there is a flat Earth, okay? Well, yeah. even if the, the Earth is flat, there's absolutely no question that Illuminati agents are, are promoting that view for some obscure reason, okay? But these modern YouTube cosmologists, they are not taking any... There's maybe one exception to this, um, and I think the guy is an agent, okay? There's no serious consideration of the ancient cosmology, which was radically different. What these people are doing is they're deconstructing uh, heliocentric, what I would call propaganda. Um, the reason I call it propaganda is because I can quickly prove that we live in a system of control, and there's, there's actually no way to refute it because it's too simple and it's too self-evident. And there's different ways to do this. One of them I haven't even talked to my show that much. That's too... I talk about mathematics because that's the most provable science. The numbers are virtually everywhere, and they're they're, they're disguised numeric patterns because they they have to do with words. And then you uh, when you break down the the words, you actually find that they're esoteric numbers, and they're all over the place. And they have to do with basically everything that has any kind of significance. Whoa! Now who's doing that? Well, initially you don't know. Maybe that's space aliens, you know. <laughs> you know, if you got a secular mindset, I mean, what's going on here, you know? <clears throat> but anyway, um, I'm a devolutionist. We could talk about that. But a devolutionist is going to look at knowledge from a totally different angle. He's going to reach back to the distant past and believe that there was qualitatively superior knowledge at one time, and this is compatible with what the Bible teaches when you emphasize something that Christians don't talk about, which is an ancient... Adamic oral tradition. He had this huge body of knowledge, and he passed it down to his son Seth, and he passed it down to his son. 
And then we ask ourselves the question, where did all that knowledge go? Well, we don't know, you see. And this is just basic common sense, but you'll notice, there's, you'll find this pattern over and over again. There's no discussion in Christianity. I don't see a discussion historically at any significant level. It's just like nothing. You know what I mean? So anyway, in the ancient world, they had a radically different cosmology. And uh, one of the major components that's not being discussed at any significant level, I, I'm giving people a break here, is this um, concept of a cosmic sea, which the Greeks called Oceanus. And um, all ancient cosmologies, according to scholars... Now, there could be some insignificant cosmologies out there, and I don't trust the uh, historical representations on Google Images because they can easily be um, anything from uh, modern you know, reconstructs to medieval forgeries. We really don't have any way of knowing. But scholars say that, um, that all ancient cosmologies were basically three-tiered. They were relatively simple. They had a heaven, they had an underworld, and they had a, a middle plane of existence, what we call Earth. And then they had this um, vast cosmic sea, and somewhat curiously, they also had an enclosed cosmology. There's no, they had no concept of outer space. They also didn't have a concept of planets. And I'm deliberately saying these three things because most people have never heard this. See, what actually happened? I make the case, and I believe I can infallibly prove, that we're born into a cultic system, Okay. Let's examine that very quickly, because is it true or is it not true that when you went to school, you were just like me, and they rolled out this um, heliocentric cosmology, and we just believed that without questioning it? I mean, I didn't question it. Did you? No, I had no reason to. They had no reason. The Earth is a perfect sphere. I call this the Hollywood cosmology. And then they create the artificial dialectic, they don't um, discuss it, but they kind of have it out there hovering in the background. And this is one of the greatest absurdities, at least it was historically in the 20th century to the modern mind, and that's the flat earth model. And I believe that that was used, even though it wasn't promoted. It's kind of like, you don't want to be a flat earther, do you? Because that's going to, that artificial construct is going to drive you, actually secure you in the, uh, what I call the Hollywood cosmology. Just believe what Hollywood says, what they represent. Now, here's the thing. Without any critical thinking. See, right now, we don't have anything different than the Watchtower Bible and Tract Society, which comes up all the answers just for you. And if you don't believe what you're told, they're going to disfellowship you. They're going to punish you. And in our uh, so-called education system, which is actually largely indoctrination, they punish you too. And they also have what's called shunning. Because every cultic system has shunning, okay? You have to conform and obey and believe what you're told. Simply memorize the information and then spit it back to the authority, whether it's a professor or whatever. I want to say something about this cultic society. Mm -hmm. Because uh, I agree with you, but I want to take it a step further. I believe that we live within a cult, within a cult, within a cult, within a cult, within a cult. I actually believe that. You know what I mean? It's not just a cultic. So when you start yeah, to... Yeah, there's, there's cults within you, the major cult. Yeah, so either it's it's religion or it's society, it's cultural, it's, it, you know, 
educational. It's uh, within the workplace. It's just within your own family. It's uh, within uh, all sorts of areas of your life. In fact, it's just all... <laughs> The more and more you work on yourself and work on this and work on what's really going on, you realize that you're a victim of one group after another group after another group after another group after another group. Mm-hmm. And as you wake up, well, yeah, this new age thing, like whatever, um, as you start to discover the truth about the world, and slowly, it's always a very slow process, a lot slower than I realize, that, um, that you become more and more isolated. It's a brilliant satanic system of love order. That's the shunning uh, principle there, the isolation. Oh, oh yes, yeah, shunning and uh, drawing. Yeah, it's it's just a, it's actually quite fascinating. They don't have to deliberately <laughs> shun you; they can just simply withdraw. They don't identify with you anymore. Oh, absolutely. They can't relate to you. They think you're strange. Fascinating point. I grew up a uh, Mormon, and for and Saturday, you know, on the move, I'm still moving. And to my new place, um, and uh, I, my mom's still a Mormon, and someone from the church, or her home teacher, you probably know all about this, he he helped out begrudgingly, and he showed up just out of the blue, and just huffing and puffing, and and he puts, put a bunch of stuff in his car, and the next thing you know, I show up, and say, oh, well, hey, how's it going? He says, well, I'm ready to help you move. Okay, we get there, we get down, and move the stuff in, in my new place, and I'll he turns around. And last thing he says, you know, I'm not doing this for you. I'm doing this for your mom. And I just turned around and I said, I understand. That's no problem. I appreciate it. It makes all the sense in the world why you wouldn't do it. You know why? Because I used to be a Mormon. I was even on a mission and all that. When they come around now, I just simply say, listen, um, what can your religion do for me that Jesus Christ can't? That pretty much ends it right there. <laughs> I don't even have to do it anymore. They get so upset. <laughs> but anyways, go on. I'm sorry. <laughs> Just a point of uh, the example of being shunned. You know what I mean? <laughs> did you see that podcast, uh, the Mormon Dialogues? Oh, did you do that young man from uh, uh, Alaska? Yeah, Nathan. Alaska. Very interesting. I was very intrigued. Very much a man who's heavily influenced by Mormonism. He seems like a genuinely nice guy. A lot of folks in Mormon and the Mormon cult are. But boy, I'm glad I'm not in that space anymore. Let's put it that way. There's another one in room two. There's another one in room two. Yeah. Anyway, so in the in the uh, ancient cosmology, they had a, a vast cosmic sea, and we're sitting on what they would have called. Uh, well, actually, the uh, the Norse they have a unique cosmology. I think it's probably a, a medieval construct. But um, I think there's some el- essential elements that hold true. It's a depiction of, of what, what was called Midgard. And Midgard Sea is essentially Middle Earth. Now, when we talk about a Middle Earth, we can spe- be speaking horizontally or vertically or actually both. Because Middle Earth can ha- actually have to do with the three-tiered cosmology. You know, you have this up and down thing. But anyway, um, so the Greeks called this cosmic sea, which all ancient cosmologies had, according to scholars... They called it Oceanus, and that's where we get the word ocean, you see. Now, I believe there's propaganda about that, because if you do your research, the older concept of Oceanus was a cosmic sea, and then it became corrupted, I believe, deliberately into a world-encircling river. Okay? But in the older Oceanus, which was compatible with the other ancient cosmologies, um, Atlantis 
was a land beyond the outskirts of Oceanus in the distant west. Now, this is very interesting because, you see, you won't hear people talk about this. You have these paradisical lands, which are not equal in quality, in the distant east and the distant west. Now, one of the ways that you can indicate that um, this would be where Eden is at, okay, that this is what the Hebrews believed is because scholars say that there's um, extra-biblical tradition. It's not explicitly in the, in the Bible, but they're confident in it that the, um, you know, the Hebrews used to pl- uh, pray, or the Judeans, or whatever, um, towards the direction of Jerusalem. Uh, without realizing, see, they're looking at things through their modern cosmology. That, that's not going to work. Because if what if you're in the other direction? Well, <laughs> you're going to have to pray in the opposite direction towards Jerusalem. So the whole thing breaks down right there, and you go, hold it here, there's something wrong. Yes, because... Um, the sacred east to the Hebrews was the opposite of the Greeks. They had a sacred west, uh, which I believe was inferior, and it has many names to it. You know, the Blessed Isles, a lot of them are kind of hard to pronounce. Some of them are Greek words. Uh, other cultures also had a sacred west. There was a classic work written by a so-called alchemist called Fulconelli in the early 20th century, called Mystery of the Cathedrals, and that's actually available for a free PDF file, which I believe is totally legal. And uh, the thesis of that book is that these medieval uh, cathedrals were actually uh, had esoteric architecture that was oriented towards the sacred west and a dark goddess figure, which is something that's even more obscure. This is... um, what we call the goddess of a thousand names. It's basically the same goddess over and over again. Not, not that there's only one goddess. You but they were dark glorifying as dark her. as in uh, the Black Madonna or dark as yeah. in the like dark yep. spiritual thing? Yeah, right. yep. but they, it was a little bit more complex for them because they had, most people don't know this, but in the ancient world, just setting aside Hebrew culture, you can prove that they actually believed that every person had what the Greeks, Greeks called a daemon what New Agers would call a higher self. You could call it uh, an angelic counterpart. Uh, believe it or not, this is actually the primary goal of occultic belief systems. It's amazing that more people don't know this. For instance, uh, in Thelema, um, you know, religion of Aleister Crowley, which has been injected into our popular satanic culture, um, that was the supreme goal, was to uh, to unify with your what he called, and this is a little psyop, holy guardian angel. You can take all that and reverse it. But uh, they believed that you had basically a higher self. And there were different views of whether you were divided, whether you could be physically blended at some point in the future. But this is what ancient man believed. And the reason I'm saying this, because you don't hear people talk about it, and most Christians, the only time they've been exposed to this view is when they hear the term higher self, from the New Age, and immediately reject it without any investigation, and just move on. What I'm trying to say is they don't actually go to the Bible and try to uh, find a proof well, text, because I, I it doesn't even argue, qualify to be refuted, you know what I mean? I would argue that it's a very valid reason to immediately reject it. Somebody who was um, in the New Age movement, myself, when I was in AA and I was attending um, Unity Church, which is a uh, oh yeah, 
um, <clears throat> so metaphysical Christian church. Um, yeah. There's, yeah. there's a lot of good reasons why to reject it because most of it is really just uh, crap. Really, that's where I know it sounds like that. Not a very uh, intellectual way of saying it, but at the end of the day, it is. It all yeah, I'm saying this, this, this is what the ancients used to believe. Well, I know. The problem, is, the problem is what you're talking about. The ancients used to believe mm-hmm. is not what because people are being taught in the New Age movement. That's true. That's the thing. So that's there's no way of ever knowing about the new the ancient beliefs because of what people are actually being exposed to. They never even get to that point. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, anyways, I'm just saying, it's 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 uh, once again, it's another layer of occultism or cult nature that we are organization that we fall onto, and another layer of deception that keeps you from actually asking the deeper questions and re, you know reaching out to you know to something greater and deeper. So, mm-hmm. I believe the full name of the un- unity is the unity. Uh... School and or Church of Christianity. <laughs> whatever it is, but whatever it is. Pray themselves as a Christian church initially. Yeah, well, it basically is as a low grade form of Luciferianism, so that's whatever it comes down to. And it's all well, about there's quite self- a few unity churches, if you want to call them a church. Um, <laughs> there's problems with that, obviously, but when these, um, you know, those these New Age type, you know, book writers and, and uh, uh, they make these tours, a lot of times they. Uh, you know, they're giving their little speeches and stuff, presentations in a unity church oh, yeah. locally. That's where they're often found, along with your uh, local bookstore, you know, Barnes & Noble or something like that. Oh, yeah, shelves and shelves of that stuff. So. Yes. <clears throat> Red flag in itself, don't you think? <laughs> yeah. So it's all about this soul self-help, self-help kind of thing, and it's about spirituality, but a different type of spirituality where it's all about yourself, yourself, and what you can get out of uh, life in the world, and um, it's, uh, and by the way, it actually works, by the way, it will, it really does, um, it will destroy your life in the end, but it really does work, I know this, for the fact that I was doing all that stuff, I was doing all the, the secret stuff, you know, as we know the book, The Secret, and uh the visualization and all that, you know, uh, Hicks and uh, Abraham Hicks, uh, Abraham Hicks and all that kind of stuff, or mm-hmm. Hicks and Abraham, whatever. And uh, by the way, I got a lot of the things that I wanted. I look back now, I wish I never would have got them, but I guess I was a, it was a process of learning and coming to a greater reality, and even coming to finally Yeshua the Messiah, or you know, call him Jesus Christ, or whatever you call him. <clears throat> God of the Bible for me. So, that's so how anyway, I mean, if me. you if you took the ancient opinion, that would be like a collective opinion. They would um, they would believe that we can't process the location of um, Atlantis, or you know, conceive of it the way they did because we're so far off the mark. We've got a radically different cosmology. But that's actually what the Greeks taught. And Plato supposedly came up with that. But he, he, that's just the word there, you know. Why, why do you think we are not? We are long, no longer uh, in Atlantis? Do you have any ideas about that? Well, I actually believe uh, in this Western paradisical civilization, although I can't prove it because we don't have enough information that's reliable. Right. But I believe that there's a conspiracy to create a false cosmology, to actually cover up 
primarily the paradise in the east and secondarily the paradise in the west, which is sacred to them and qualitatively more important. They have the ability to do that in the medieval period. They had a system of control. Uh, the Roman Catholic Church basically ran everything. That's a bit of an oversimplification. We're only talking about part of the world. But at that time, they controlled the information, and they could radically corrupt things. And there was no real way, once they uh, destroyed the middle class, and there was a, uh, a middle class in a qualified sense in the ancient world. you got to be careful there. But um, we lost access to information that we had before. And I believe that they intentionally made people illiterate. I believe that people spoke you know, Aramaic. It's a common language. And they Latinized everything for a diabolical purpose, and that's how they made people illiterate. And I actually believe it talks about that in Isaiah 29. It's a prophecy. Well, they made God's people illiterate, and they took away the, um, you know, what we call the Bible today. Right. And, what's, the, what's, the, what's the diabolical purpose? Uh, to make us less intelligent and um, to disorient us. Because people were not illiterate. They still spoke Aramaic. It took centuries for them to lose that. Like, say, for instance, in southeastern Europe, you know, <laughs> they were speaking Aramaic. And uh, eventually, you know, everything is won over to the system. It takes time. You know, it's not going to happen overnight. So people didn't become illiterate overnight, but um, they uh, created a Latinized system and uh, unless you spoke the language, they didn't teach you the language. That's the problem. Nobody was teaching anything. They were withholding knowledge. And so you had to do that yourself somehow. You don't have any books. And uh, you're looking for someone that speaks Latin so you can emulate them or they can teach you. And eventually that would happen gradually. It would take time. But that's, that's a, a brilliant plan to make people illiterate uh, categorically. Because they, there was another sense where they weren't illiterate. They were supposed and, to and, be and, a, and a way to and a way to separate the priestcraft, or which is a step, just a, a notch away from the witchcraft, mm-hmm. from the common people. Yeah, you know, the Bible talks about the the Church of Nicolaitans, and um, this simply, you know, how God hates it, and uh, it's understandable why. <laughs> it's uh, this whole. Uh, Use of the uh, priestcraft or the priest class, whatever you want, and uh, dividing themselves from and from the commoner. And what is the most powerful way of doing that is through knowledge, and then of course language. If there's a language barrier, then it's much more easier to hold on to the the precious knowledge that they might have. So it's very logical that what they would do. It's very you know. Very diabolical, as you say, and it's very wicked, but it's it's understandable why they did it, now they did it. I want to say real quickly, too, that anything that's sacred to them, uh, you know, they proceed off the assumption that knowledge is power, which should be a self-evident fact. But they, they're highly religious people, and you know, we're talking about the controllers, and mm-hmm. uh, so they conglomerate and conceal and hoard knowledge unto themselves to make themselves more powerful. And anything that they think, they think is sacred, they will misdirect you. And I already said, and this is basically, you know, communicated through the medieval cathedrals, that there's a sacred West, and, uh, you know, you have to make the connection with Atlantis, 
but if you understand the Greek cosmology, that's not a huge problem. And then, uh, so what they're doing, they're misdirecting you about the location of Atlantis by entitling, you know, the ocean that we have to the uh, east of America is Atlantis, uh, because I believe that was done deliberately. And that confuses almost everybody, including the scholars. Cause, see, the scholars, if they believe, they, they, they're going to be skeptical of Atlantis. But what they will do is they'll try to figure out where people in the past used to believe it was and place it somewhere around you know, the Atlantic Ocean, although not always. Sometimes it's actually like in Southeast Asia or something like that. Pacific. A lot of people say it's the Appalachian region in North America. So. Yeah, they place it just about all over the place, you know. Yeah, they do. <laughs> they do. They. And uh, <laughs> the same thing with this goddess that they worship. Um, you can see this consistent pattern, which I've talked about in my show. Well, they will point to her repeatedly. There's just like a, a constant uh, drumbeat in our culture. But it, it goes to a certain line and then stops. It won't go any further. And once you see that redundant pattern, you know that they're, um, they're promoting her, they're pointing to her, but they're not going to reveal anything significant to the masses. And the reason they do this is the same principle as Atlantis, is because it, to them it's sacred. And so I hold to the theory that the upper echelon, the higher hierarchy, they actually worship this dark goddess, and uh, you have to get initiated into it because they do not promote this worship. They actually don't promote her except for in an esoteric context. They, that's why I put out a podcast called uh, you know, The Secret Goddess. Now, a lot of people feel that this dark goddess or the black Madonna is actually Satan. What do you think? Well, they don't understand that in the ancient world they had uh, feminine beings. That's one of the reasons why they extracted that from Christianity you can't use the Bible to prove that there's not a feminine beings because you don't have enough information. You can um, you can simplify all that. You can go to Zechariah chapter 5, and there you see two feminine beings. Okay? So what you have to do is interpret that through the wider context of Scripture and fallibly prove that those cannot be angels. In other words, they're not really beings. It's just um, something that's illustrative. It doesn't have to do with actual entities. The problem is that there isn't enough information in Scripture. It's not, now, you know, your, your guy, your guy's been studying this stuff for a long time. Now, it's, obviously, we're talking about there's not enough information. Now, we're both consider ourselves to be "quote unquote" Christians, followers of the way, the truth, and the life, Yeshua the Messiah, whatever you know, going to be gotten. But uh, it, it's overwhelming and dumbfounding to a certain point when you finally realize. Uh, how little, you know, it's a big book, and really, in the end of the day, outside of the the important story, at least I see it, of Jesus Christ, um, the rest of it, I mean, there is way too much little information. It was deliberate. Either it was by the hand of God because he wanted it to be that way, which I can understand, but I think also, I think it's been delivered by the hands of as you call them, you call them the the black priests or um, the black uh, witches, the, the magicians, the Illuminati. I mean, you and I, in the end, they pretty much agree who the Illuminati is. I mean, I I focus on 
the past 500 years and how that's pretty much at this point, at least the top of this Illuminati period is the Jesuits and the Vatican. And there's overwhelming evidence for that. But as you go distant into the past, of course, the Jesuits weren't there. There was somebody else in there, that place. And uh, who knows? Between Satan and the Jesuits, there certainly is that most likely uh, anonymous, invisible group that we'll never know about, not in this lifetime. But regardless of that, it's clear, it's deliberate that what has happened to what we consider the Word of God, it has been clearly tampered with. Doesn't matter English or not at this point. And I know a lot of people find that offense. It's been tampered with. What's that? You can infallibly prove that it's been tampered with, and evangelical Christians are are unreluctant to admit this. And uh, textual critics and scholars, they refuse to admit that it was done for a diabolical purpose. They will only talk about scribal additions, or excuse me, uh, scribal errors. Textual errors, or what's it? There's no way to prove that theory. Um, because you'd have to have infallible knowledge of the past and say that there was never an evil tent to diabolically corrupt the text. How can any human being prove that? Well, as you point out in your show, and it's one of the reasons why I focus in the past 500 years, because once you get beyond that, uh, the history gets smaller and smaller and smaller and more, you know, as, you know, as time goes on, you know, the victor controls history and, dictates to us what we want to hear, and that's just a, an absolute reality. So, the fact you're listening the matter, to the Vatican tell you about history. That's what you're basically doing. Yeah. <laughs> yes, so there's a know, trust I, issue there. <laughs> oh, there's a valid, you know, listen, we're looking at the Vatican and what is it, you know, we're talking these serpent diviners. I mean, these people, you know, at the end, they don't really hide the fact that they're, they're Satanists, that they worship this the serpent. Um, I, I think. Well, they the thing communicate is, that they are satanic, uh, kind of covertly, but they do it. They do it a lot. If you're looking for it, you're going to see it. They're going to let you know. But most people oh, are not yeah. looking, they, and they don't want to. They don't want to see. No, they they don't, and you know, and and um, yeah, you know, so the Vatican actually took over the Roman Church, from what I can tell. Then again, we weren't there. We don't have a lot of information. So we can only make our best educated guesses on what we do have. But it looks pretty clear that the Vatican, which, you know, we can go into, you know, our speculation that coming out of, uh, it's, you know, the priest class coming out of uh, the Middle East and all that. Uh, but they pretty much, the Vatican's not the same thing as, well, at least pure Christianity. Uh-huh. Any more, any more than actually at this point, what we know is uh, uh, Roman Catholicism is. But then again, for the, the other side of that coin is, is that if we look at the Lutheranism, Methodism, uh, Presbyterianism, we look at the Evangelicals, we look at all the daughter churches that come out of Rome. Uh, they're not pure Christianity either. No. So they're not any better in the end of the day. And this whole argument of, about the, the Catholics against the Protestants is really quite mute. It's bunk. It's, it's another distraction is what it is. You know what I mean? One other way you mentioned the word come, purity. Uh, I, I point out that there, there is nothing that's pure in our society. It's not just religion, but everything is corrupt. Oh, and yeah. It's, it's corrupt 
and and or mediocre. You don't have excellence and purity in this culture. Well, absolutely not. Because it's satanic. <laughs> That's really what it is. I mean, I, I mean, if there's another name for it, you want to put on it, evil, whatever, satanic. I, it, it fits. It suits me today. Well, really, let me give it a term. It, it, I'll call it illuminized culture. I just want to point that out. If you know anything about wordsmithing, you mentioned the word culture early. But, there, see, they're actually communicating to you, and I believe this is primarily directed at the subconscious mind. That's a little sidetrack for Christians that we talk about. But they're telling you that you were born into a cult because this, this culture is a cult according to them. It doesn't matter whether you believe it or not. They're telling you that, and they, they know because they created it. And if you're in a cult, you're not supposed to know you're in a cult. You're supposed to go into the coffin first. And I like to say that after you die, you'll have an immediate awareness that, wow, I lived my whole life in a cult, but I never knew it. Well, you're not supposed to know. And, you know, it's funny, as on a personal level of mine, um, and for any hope for anybody else out there who might be in a cult or raised in one, I was raised in a, a you know, Mormon church, flat out. If there, if there ever was a cult... Of cults, it was a, a institution, a religious institution that was deliberately designed to be a cult and to see how far one could take in manipulating a group of people. Uh, Roman, uh, uh, Mormonism is it. I mean, the Jesuits, uh, the black magic, the magicians, whatever, um, they pretty much, it's a masterpiece. Absolute masterpiece. Well, you can convince millions of people that the Book of Mormon is an authentic textbook that's legitimate, that came out of the ground from golden plates, mm-hmm. when if you do just a little bit of research, you're going to realize that from the, the, the names of the people to the cities came from areas around uh, New York, and all they did is put an ite at the end of it. There's no, pretty much, there's no archaeological evidence to support any of it, none of it, that um, it's just a, a fine example. I th- really think this is like a fertile uh, breeding ground. America, what is main purposes for what we call the United States of America was to breed new cults, new forms of mind control that could be spread throughout the rest of the world. I don't know how you see that, but that's... I'm thinking of Nathan uh, up in Alaska, and he's probably going, Dave, uh, you should have said something there. But I do believe that the Israelites, um, I was just talking about this last night, there's no actual way to disprove this, but I believe that, um, I don't think it was that difficult to reach the Americas from either direction. I think mm-hmm. it was ongoing, so it was never truly discovered. They've lied to us about that, about the difficulty, just like the difficulty of flying and pretty much everything else. Unless something is truly hard, like alchemy, I mean, that's hard, you know. But um, uh, there's evidence that the Israelites were over here. There's there's fake archaeology out there, which I call tier two propaganda. And a lot, of, by the way, came from the Mormon Church. But see, what I'm what I'm holding to is the theory, uh, and, and there's actually a tremendous amount of evidence for this, in my opinion. Most people never exposed to this because they merely reject the American Israelite theory. We're talking about American Indians, and this would be primarily uh, in North America secondarily in Central America, but not so much in South America. That's why they have a lot different stature down there. They're shorter. Um, they came, now these would be the Samaritans, basically, the ten northern tribes, and they journeyed across Euro-Asia, across the uh, Aleutian Peninsula, which at one time was a land bridge 
without question, because the water levels were lower. We can prove that. That's why there's all these um, evidence for civilization on the perimeter of the oceans, just under the water, you see. That's why they're there. Sure. The water keeps rising progressively all through history. That's what people need to understand. That That's important. That's like a little key that unlocks some things. So they don't want you to know that either. And uh, a lot of secrets just... They're not out that far. <laughs> you can go out if there someone, and, uh, someone who was raised a, a Mormon went on a Mormon mission, it does not make me happy to be have the stance that I have, obviously. Uh-huh. To know that in my first 20-some years, I pretty much wasted. Um, but the truth is, although there's some strong evidence that there has been uh, interaction trade going on between what we call the Western Hemisphere and the Eastern Hemisphere, for thousands of years, does not in any way validate, validate the Book of Mormon. Does well, the Mormons are claiming that the Israelites came from the uh, the east. I'm <clears throat> saying that they. I'm not saying that they couldn't have, um, because I actually believe that um, that Solomon had a fleet, uh, a naval uh, fleet, and he actually uh-huh. had kind of a. You could call it an empire. It's kind of hard to accurately uh, codify that term going back that far. But, um, um, you know, this doesn't verify the Book of Mormon. It's two different subjects. But the main thing I want to communicate is that people are unaware that this was a relatively common opinion in America among Christian scholars in the uh, 17th and 18th century. I was just talking about this last night. This is not some kind of hobby horse that I pound the table about. I don't, I don't talk about it that much. Um, All right. There's a lot of evidence for this in language and uh, religious traditions, and to me it looks like it's pretty much overwhelming. Most people haven't investigated it because they fall for the um, the guilt-by-association trip up with Mormonism. That's what they associate it with. They don't investigate beyond that. But um, I just pointed out last night that um, one of the greatest Christian scholars in the history of America, a uh, great theologian, Jonathan Edwards, he was responsible for what some people think was the greatest Christian sermon of all time, I wouldn't say that necessarily. I don't know how you determine that. You know, sinners in the hands of an angry God. He was a Congregationalist. He was a, it's a form of church government. It also became a denomination. He was a Calvinist. And he was responsible to some degree uh, with involvement in the uh, the First Great Awakening, which is when America was at its spiritual peak. But this is what he believed. And he other, had other contemporaries who believed that, and they wrote books. And I'm simply saying, nobody's talking about this. We need to go back and look at this information and look at the evidence, and we're simply not doing it because we're associated with Mormonism. Now, you're talking about in the early uh, 19th century, there was a big push, not only from the burnt-over district, but from the East and from the intelligentsia and the religious churches in America. There was a big push that was beyond simply the Mormons, or even before the Mormon churches Absolutely. were created. But there was a push going on saying that the Israelites had come to North America. Yeah, I mean, it's just, it's, there's a lot of history. Well, I wouldn't associate so much with the burned-over district because there was some kind of um, artificiality going on there. And this is actually has to do with Christian scholarship uh, during over those two centuries. Right. There was and, uh, a yeah. lot of uh, good and bad religious phenomena that was going on there. It was not all bad, you know. And it definitely was being pushed, and you even, uh, from what I understand, even uh, newspaper articles and, and pamphlets being pr- produced throughout the, the, the 13 colonies and beyond. 
Another thing that we do know for sure, uh, Michael, is that after Joseph Smith and Brigham Young began to uh, promulgate this theory, all of a sudden you don't really have any significant discussion about this in the Christian community. And it's, it's pretty obvious to me why. It's because they um, associate it with Mormonism. They distance themselves from it. They don't want to do it anymore, see? Because you have these patterns that emerge. I, I think part of it's that, and I think also part of it's because of the history of, you know, you're into this fakery and... and uh, and stuff. I mean, in place, if you listen to a little bit of research, you're going to realize there's some pretty big name Mormons that were responsible for a lot of these uh, fake uh, supposed uh, ancient sightings, whether it's in. Uh, that is true. And, and so, you know, you look at it, everything's always uh, reverse, different, and ex- completely opposite of what you, you and I understand. We weren't there. We weren't privy to all the details. Could be a, a good idea. The way to speculate it would be is that uh, what was going on, and they were one of the things they were using the Mormon Church was is actually to hide and discredit what was actually or what could have been legitimate archaeological discoveries. Yeah, that's an interesting theory. Yeah, you know what I mean. Well, because the Mormon naturally, Church would be, would be red-handed a great, with fake, fake archaeology. Archaeology. Yeah, and, and it'd be a great strategy because it was, you know, the average Roman Catholic and quote unquote Christian in this country would find, first of all, you know, a great offense to Mormon, the Mormon faith, for all of the heretical uh, things that they practiced back then and still do, pretty much. That you would, uh, you it'd be a great way of channeling people's focus and attention on something other. Than what the, with, of great importance, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, if you were if you were the guy that was in control, and if you were thinking in this, always we're going to think of how they would think. Wouldn't you do something like that? <laughs> well, absolutely. A lot of times I've talked about uh, doing things from the perspective of a social engineer. Here's how they would think, or from the perspective of a black black magician, because they have a completely different mindset than you do, and right. people don't think about that. You know the, the way that they are thinking. Get into their mindset. They don't try to do that. And as a general rule, I actually think that uh, God doesn't want the average Christian to get in the mindset of a powerful black magician. That's probably not going to work too well. You know? <laughs> probably not. But you can. <laughs> but you can think. You know. Well, you know, the conjuring of demons and spirits and the, the black arts. That's one thing. But just to have an understanding. That was the scriptures say. Uh, the be wise as serpents. I think it's good to know how they actually operate. That way, you, you know, as you have done that, and as I'm, I'm doing this, and look, it, it, you, it's much easier not to be deceived. Mm-hmm. Once you understand how they operate, you can say, well, hey, listen, <laughs> I'm not going down this path. I'm not buying into this thing. Um, give me some hard, solid facts and some evidence. Give me something that's real and a few more things, and then maybe I'll start buying into it. You know what I mean? Well, let me ask you a question. How do you interpret that passage, be as wise as serpents? Because there's a lot of speculation out there on YouTube about passages like that. You know, these serpent rays or reptilian beings. How do you interpret that? Well, I had a, I had a personal experience with someone I deeply loved, and I brought it up already on the show, and I can bring it up again. Mm-hmm. I don't know. If, maybe I didn't bring it up on my show, uh, but... Uh, and I've seen, you talk about the eyes, 
and this happened about six, seven years ago. Uh-huh. And somebody I deeply care was, was totally freaked me out. I had no idea what I was looking at at the time. I had no idea. They talk about that kind of uh, dark cloud that entered the room and how they just just act extremely bizarre and almost uh, serpentine-like, animal-like, the eyes shifting. Is it a lizard-type bean thing? I don't know. Uh, is it, uh, to me, at this point, it seems very demonic. We talk about well, I'm just talking about the possibility that there's uh, serpent beings out there under that ref classification that are intelligent. I, if it is, it cannot be what David Icke pushes. <laughs> Let's put it that way. This would in not be opinion. in the reptile kingdom. Uh, it would have some overlap with that to some degree, but these would be um, intelligent, rational beings that potentially are morally culpable, and there's a way to possibly prove that. More strongly now, I, now, you're asking me what I think about it. And that's uh-huh. what I'm just telling you. I, first of all, I don't know. You know, they, after, after everything I've learned just this past year, uh, yeah, it's the year of the flat earth. It definitely is definitely is deliberate. Uh, but same token, just the fact that just my eyes opening up the fact that we have never been to the moon. Uh, we don't have any idea what a planet looks like, even our own. Who knows? Mm-hmm. It's, as you know what I mean? I, I'm not going to have it being part of my quote-unquote belief system, but that doesn't mean as if somebody like you said, hey, Mike, I got this solid evidence that it's real, and you want to share it with me, and, and I see it, and I, it's demonstrable. I'm like, who am I to say no at this point? Mm-hmm. I mean, you're the one that brought up this whole thing about uh, – uh, well, you're not the one. You, others have brought it up too, like uh, Russian vids and very few uh, and other folks about the moon and how the moon um, and the clouds are behind the moon. Well, dang, it's turning out. It, it, it's there are those who say it's an optical, optical illusion from video cameras, but you're claiming, and there's no reason for me to doubt you. You seem like a very sincere, genuine guy that's got nothing to gain from any of this personally. As far as welfare, and you're saying that you've seen it personally, the the, the uh, cloud behind the moon. Well, you can see it behind the sun. It's actually more impressive yeah. behind the sun. I have not had that personal experience, but watching the videos, uh, and I know you can't trust a lot of videos these days, but I find it pretty hard. Some of those videos have seen to doctor up to the point of faking it. <laughs> the way. Yeah, well, I actually uh, <laughs> believe that you can't actually prove anything with uh, digital imagery, unfortunately. Yeah. So, but you have that. Okay. You got to use You have the personal testimony yourself saying, you know what? Uh, like we're talking about the cosmology. Mm-hmm. Obviously, we don't understand even our cosmology. Therefore, could there be something other in this world that's that we don't understand, like some kind of lizard type? Demonic beings, etc. Well, let me illustrate whatever just something real quick. If you go to uh, Genesis chapter nine, uh, where Yahweh is speaking to uh, Noah, and he actually uh, says that he's talking about the importance of blood, how this relates to murder, and he's talking about a non-Adamic being. Everyone has to figure out what this means. They're not paying attention. This word is is kind of unfortunate. 
traditionally translated like in the King James tradition is beast. Okay? But if you go and look at the text, it's very clear that these beasts, whoever they are, are morally culpable and they're actually responsible for moral actions before God. Now, this is not compatible with modern Christianity because they don't have these beings. So they're not paying attention to that text. You can go look at it. They're going to be judged by God for their moral actions. Now, in the Christian identity movement, they will claim that those beasts are human in appearance but non-Adamic. Okay? They would correlate those beasts with the same beasts of the field in, I believe, Genesis 2. You know, they're inferior races. Uh-huh. But um, it's possible they could be uh, these serpent beings, which there's evidence all around the world that people believe in these entities. And uh, there's so much confusion because there's also um, what you call a seraphim. Uh, and some of them are dark, you know. And uh, a seraphim is actually, uh, structurally anyway, it's a beautiful um, celestial being. These are the ones that hover around the throne. Now, if a person has difficulty with that, they can go look at someone like who's an expert linguist like Michael Heiser, because he has proven that the Hebrew word actually has to do with the word serpent. Most people don't know that. Because they associate anything to do with you know serpents is negativity. And I actually believe that's deliberate to cover certain things up in the Christian mind, to just react this way, that way. They know what they're doing. They know how to push our buttons. They give us these trigger words, you see. Yeah, it's definitely like the word hell is named after a uh, a pagan Germanic god. That's not a biblical word. H-E-L. They chose that word. And see, I hold to the view that the entire English language is weaponized um, to be utilized against the primary enemy in redemptive history. And who is that? Um, God's people. Now, how did all this happen? A corporate uh, punishment from God, in my estimation. This is what happens when you look at the big picture. So God is working through evil hierarchies that he actually established and this has been going on for, for thousands of years, somewhat curiously. Christians tend to ignore this, just like the Israelites did. Mm-hmm. But if you're in physical bondage, like if you're in Egypt, you're not going to ignore it. Because you're, it's self-evident every day. Well, we are in a different type of bondage, and a lot of it has, a lot of it is the covert, and a lot of it has to do with mental and slavery. And you can readily prove this because there's a lot of things in the human mind, whether they're Christian or not, that people simply don't think about for various reasons. Um, Or there's a lot of what I call disconnects, where people will hold to contrary beliefs, which cannot possibly be reconciled, and they've never thought this out. But these these opposite opinions are promoted in the media. You know, they're not there to get you to think straight, as we talk about on our show, you know. They're there to confuse you. That's why they never, ever, ever properly define the word Jew or Gnostic. They're not there to do that. And they'll have these scholars come on, like Elaine Pagels. Oh, she's a scholar. Uh, but for some mysterious reason, she can never give us a proper definition of a Gnostic. You see, because Gnosticism was not a monolithic movement. There was different, quote-unquote, Gnostic groups that were actually antagonistic to each other. They had radically different views of the so-called demiurge, which is a Greek word for you know craftsmen. And they probably would have been in each other's throats, 
um, especially the Cainite group, which worshipped the serpent, and actually adored all biblical antiheroes. All the bad guys were the good guys. Yeah, I mean, you know, Nimrod, he was a, he was a good guy. Cain was a good guy. I mean, does that sound like you might have a few problems? Uh, let's say, for instance, uh, Valentinianism, which had a lot of overlap with um, Christianity. It's pretty significant, you know what I mean? But no, they can never come on there, ever, after the decades fly by, and properly define those terms, ever, in the media. And that will tell you there's an agenda to keep people confused. We're not going to clarify things. We're here to confuse you, because it's statistically improbable that much time could go by, and it could never happen. So now that's one of the many ways that you can prove that there's an agenda um, just by observance of television. A lot of times it's things that are never spoken about because it's statistically improbable that that could never happen unless there's an agenda to keep it off. For instance, like um, I talk about the simple phrase, knowledge is power. You'll never hear that. Fifty years go by on television. There's a lot of things that you never hear. For instance, there's no intelligent discussion of the ethers, which people used to believe in. In Western society, going back to the Greeks, they came up with the term, and it was basically well, electromagnetic field that underlies the molecular structure. And this was believed up until the 19th century in Western science. And then they extracted the word from science, I believe for a diabolical purpose. But you can see the agenda there. And now we just deal with the level of, um, you know, dense, what we call dense creationist creationists. They don't deal with uh, subtle energy fields anymore. Because the church fathers were using these, that term as well, and uh, medieval uh, theologians, they didn't have a problem with that word. Now people react to that and go, that sounds new age to me. You know, they have no point of reference. You know. or, or archaic. But see, they, they never talk about it. On television, complete blackout. Well, because it contradicts their cosmology. It contradicts the whole th- their uh, whole idea of this expanding universe and universes upon universes. And those are deliberate absurdities, black holes. Absolutely. Like no, absolutely, yeah. Even, even illusional. If, you know, I was, I was thinking about this. You know, you have these uh, Christian pastors out there, especially uh, the uh, evangelicals that have been going around doing this a particular uh, sermon about the power of God and his creative uh, majesty, and I, I'm not denying any of that, but they like give this example of the, and they give it like our uh, supposed solar system, and then the galaxy, and then all these universes, and they like these examples of our sun, and then the next sun, and how much bigger it is, and all these planets, and all that. And they push it and promote it. As if it's absolutely. absolutely the gospel truth and it's coming straight out of the pulpits of the Christian or, and Catholic churches. Uh, and uh, without ever questioning, you know, the fact of the matter is, as you, you and I both know, no one has ever seen a planet. Mm-hmm. And that's not me being narrow-minded and that's not me being a jerk. There's no thing to prove that we've ever seen a planet. It's virtually impossible to prove the concept of planets, I always say the same thing. For anyone in the public sector, you've got to qualify them. In order to do that, you have to infallibly prove that they are not creating an artificial night sky. 
because if you have any uh, significant suspicion that they are, then everything is called into question. You don't have certainty anymore. How do you know that they're not that these are not projections from um, a high subterranean technological society? How do you disprove that? You, you can't. Now, I, w- I want you to go into, if you are willing to, to go into depth of what you're talking about, an artificial night sky, because it is fascinating um, concepts. And if you're willing to spend, you know, five, ten minutes breaking down exactly what you mean by that, I know you can say, well, I don't need to. Ten, ten, ten seconds. I think you do. At least I would like you to. Well, you can ask me uh, more specific questions, but it's actually pretty simple. There's like three different levels. The first level, you can have a little fun with people. You can, as long as there's a decent, you know, you want to go outside, look at the sky and go, okay, we're ready to go. Uh, you don't want to have uh, any significant cloud cover. And so... um you actually challenge a person. I said, I guarantee that you can see a UFO in less than 10 seconds. Now, this typically takes five seconds. And I actually asked people in this apartment complex, how long did that take? Is it true that it took five seconds? They said, yep. And you just point them to, um, you know, they don't believe that you're going to be able to do this, so they are kind of got this little smirk, you know. Well, they're going to lose that real soon. And you take them outside, and I actually like to measure the time, you know, once you close the door and, you know, you walk and because uh, it's not far from the door. You know, I just walk outside the door, look up up there, and I point to the most obvious one and I say, now watch that. And they're just going, whoa, what the heck is that thing doing? What is that thing? Because <laughs> right away you can tell that it's not a star. Now, it's drifting off artificially uh, to the left and right to such a degree it's virtually impossible to explain that. You know, the initial explanation, well, that's a twinkling star, okay? Then you're going to have to consider the possibility that there could be some kind of um, atmospheric phenomena that could be involved with this. Just keep looking at it. And you want to get a, a good sighting, like go out late, um, like 2 o'clock at night, because it improves over time, because a lot of people have um, you know, a lot of art- artificial light in, in, uh, in big cities, and uh, it affects um, looking at the smaller stars, which, which is mainly what we want to talk about as we go along here. So uh, I have a 100% success rate of uh, showing people a UFO for the first time in their life because a lot of people, I think they've actually seen them, but they don't want to confess it because there's this amazing cultural uh, pressure on you to look normal. And this, you're in this cult, you see. There's evidence for this everywhere. You, know, you don't want to appear strange, you know. But you, you've probably seen a UFO, but you don't want – if you ask somebody yes or no question, they say no. Well, they got a, either got a bad memory or they're, they're lying, but not everybody, you know what I mean? And so anyway, then um, you want to point out that this is true for all of these objects, and they all move in direct proportion to their size. In other words, the smaller ones are moving as well. And you can see this very clearly when you're up in the mountains. That's where it's extremely I- impressive. And uh, it will basically collapse your reality because you can see that the entire night sky is it's completely artificial. Now, as far as the moon goes, we can infallibly prove that there has to be a false moon at least some of the time. And that's actually easier to prove than the stars because it's highly irregular and some nights it doesn't show up. It will skip nights. 
Well, there's no actual way to explain this except for some kind of technology. They could, if that was a real moon, they could, they can always veil the moon, just like they can veil a star. And by the way, these stars, I haven't talked about this too much on the show, but people watch them, you know, they're fake stars, they will disappear. Because they, they watch certain stars. Like, you know, i got to go out and look at that star again. And, I, you know, and they go out there, and it's always in the same place at a certain time, and then one night it's not there. And what the heck is that telling you? You know what I mean? <laughs> and so um, there, there's no real way to uh, to refute this because it's too simple, it's too self-evident. But, but people have uh, problems with the stars when I start to talk about the implications of all this and how this relates to infallibly proving through actually mathematics, which is the most provable science, that we live in a system of control and there's no way to refute it because it's too simple, it's too self-evident. Okay, so the easiest way to confirm the stars is actually focus on the moon and the movements of this false moon. I believe there's a genuine moon, but they have a false moon out there you know, too many nights of the month. And they also have this moon in the afternoon. And you know we're going to do some research on this to try to figure out what's going on. I don't believe we can get to the heart of the matter, but I don't believe that that afternoon, afternoon moon was there in the 19th century. I don't believe it was in the, there in the ancient world. I think it probably is post-World War. Uh, we've got a witness now that says he saw it in the 60s, and that's as far as back as we can go. But if you go back to Genesis 1, you'll see that God appointed you know, two great signs in the sky, and the sun mm-hmm. was for the daytime, and what was the moon for? At night. So what that's in the right. heck is this afternoon moon? Because I do have people I've talked to, and they, they don't remember it when they were in their childhood. You see that? Mm-hmm. And you notice that in the media, they don't really talk about the afternoon moon. Just kind of ignore it. I mean, you still pick, see pictures of it, you know what I mean? Something's haywire with all that. But it's, um, you can prove that it's false because it's highly irregular, and uh, there's no way to reconcile it with a genuine moon. The patterns are too erratic. And so um, you got a huge problem there if you're going to try to prove that's a genuine moon because there's no real way to do it. So it's a false moon. Now, see, the real problem people have is, is there a real moon? Because if you don't have an ancient perspective or a biblical perspective, if you've got what we call a fakeologist perspective, you don't believe in a god, these people don't believe in a moon. They think it's all fake. You see, I have more of an ancient perspective, but I can't prove that there's a real moon right now uh, the Bible speaks about a moon in the future. It doesn't talk about a moon right now, because I believe in a massive first-century cataclysm. And even though I don't believe this happened, it's theoretically possible that the moon was destroyed and it's not restructured later until Israel is phys- physically restored. It could possibly be a sign. It talks about this Davidic prince, which you could call a lesser messianic figure. And basically it says in Psalm 89 and uh, Psalm 72 that his his rule will be contemporaneous with the sun and the moon. Uh, because they're not eternal, because they're replaced by the light of God and the Lamb at the end of the age, apparently. It talks about this in Revelation 21. Okay? So anyway, the um, the proof for a false moon is based on movement. Okay? Why do we believe there's a false moon? Because of erratic movement. This is glaringly obvious, so take that principle, which anybody can see, there's no way to refute it, and now go back to the stars. Because once I start to um, apply this information, it's not going to go well on an emotional level because your whole perception of reality is going to crash. That's what I call it, okay? Mm. And again, I'm going to use mathematics, okay? So 
but has the greatest certainty. And uh, so if you take the, the moon principle and apply it to the stars, they're doing the same thing as the moon, irregular movements that are highly artificial. And sometimes they're, they're moving in such a way that it appears that they want to be seen as being fake. You really need to watch them. You go, this is completely outrageous. Because sometimes they will really drift around. And, and now, I've seen um, kaleidoscope patterns where they're uh, expanding and uh, compressing. Uh, it, you know, I mean, obviously, part of the night sky is completely fake. Now, this could be like 50 stars. I was up mountain climbing, you see. It was kind of freaky. That's why I first saw all this, by the way, was up mountain climbing all alone on a mountain climbing trip. I was very isolated. I talked about that on... Um, the Daniel Ott show, the Edge television show, that's when I first broke that story. And when I broke the story, there was immediate reaction from the controllers on the very day that I agreed to go on that show, and that was the one show that I chose to make this go public. Okay, this has to do with the cloud behind the moon. That's something different, okay? Uh, but this is related because this will crash your cosmology unless you're going to hypothesize about uh, holographic projections, which you cannot prove, by the way, just trusting your naked eye. Then they've lied to us about um, our cosmology and uh, the size of the sun and moon and their distance from the earth and the shape of the earth, which would be large. And um, somewhat interestingly, this is exactly what they believed in the ancient world. When you look at the sun and the moon, your eyes are telling you that they're the same size. You know, that the sun changes somewhat as it rises and sets. And science actually explains that I actually agree with it, you know, generally, you know what I mean? But... Um, they're approximately the same size, and in the ancient world, when people trusted their eyes, they believed that they were the same size. We trust science. They're throwing occulted numbers around like, um, well, you know, the moon is 93 million miles away. They're actually telling you that there's tampering going on here. They want you to know. They want a certain segment, which is obviously small, to actually be aware that there's tampering because they're boasting because they have great satanic egos, we're talking about black magicians here, they did the same thing <clears throat> with our Bible, with the 66 books, which is telling you it's, the canon is incomplete. Uh -huh. We talk about how the canon itself is artificial. And the uh, you can't actually have an authoritative church council because we don't have any authorities to have a church council beyond the uh, apostles. Who are these people? <laughs> And how do we know that they're not conspirators, too, that far back in history? And I pushed the envelope. I said, how do you even know there was a church council? Now, I actually believe that there was, but I can't prove it. Neither can anybody else. Unless they have a time machine. And I don't believe in that either. <laughs> I actually think that's propaganda. You know what I mean? And who, and who was all there at that council, too? That's the question. As well. well, you're going to have – the thing is, you see, we call this learning how to think straight. So I ask these questions to try to get people to deliberately think. So you ask yourself this question. Do you believe that they would be sufficiently motivated to get an infiltrator in there? Well, that's a stupid question. <laughs> see, now we're thinking, aren't we? See, because the yeah. Christian community is not thinking at all. So now we're going to determine how many conspirators were there. Well, you don't know, do you? Nobody knows. Nope. Well, how do you know that they weren't all conspirators? You don't know that either. But see, we're not having these conversations, these dialogues. We're not thinking. We're just assuming this nice little pat reality is basically handed to us in a box in our lab with a pink ribbon on it. And here's your version of reality. 
Because is it true or is it not true that they gave you a heliocentric cosmology with a perfectly spherical Earth, which Western scientists do not believe in, by the way? You can go to Wikipedia, and none of them believe in it. They believe the Earth is an oblate spheroid. In fact, I just read two days ago on Wikipedia, <laughs> we're going to Wikipedia all the time, that Isaac Newton, he um, proved that the Earth was an oblate spheroid, and that was accepted in, in Western science. Well, he didn't believe it was a sphere either, you see? And, they, and they've, never, they've never changed this. And it's amazing, they just pushed this Hollywood cosmology because scientists themselves don't believe it. And there's always a disconnect between the academic community and the non-academic community because people will go, how can that be? You know what I mean? Well, let me tell you something. There's not a lot of communication um, on a non-conspiratorial level between Hollywood and genuine academia. These right. conversations don't take place. The way to illustrate this, the average person is never going to have a conversation with a scholar. This is true. Now, if someone's confused about that, that's because they may think that their college professor is a scholar. In a qualified sense, he may be, but largely those people are simply vehicles of propaganda. They're what I call textbook repeaters, just like an atheist, an evolutionist. We're supposed to be impressed that they have stored, internalized all this propaganda very efficiently. I would, are you supposed to be proud of that? Is that impressive? Because I don't think so. Because these people like, can't think like, out of a I like box. I'd like to go back a little bit to the cosmology thing here. And uh, first of all, I share a personal experience I had <clears throat> a couple months ago. Mm-hmm. It, was, it was during, oh, I say, if I'm not mistaken, it was sometime between 2 and 4 or 5 in the afternoon. And I looked up into the what would be the, the southern sky. And uh, to the left of me, there was a half a moon. It was blue. It was one of those rare blue skies. Uh, I, I'm from you know Northwest Ohio. We have uh, one of the most. You're from you're from the other. You're from Seattle, so we both know what it's like to have a lot of overcast days. Yeah. In fact, I, I think that Toledo uh, is second to Seattle the number of actual overcast days. Hmm. And so anyway, so uh, we uh, I, I see this as a half a moon. And then, and then to my right, almost to the exact same height, is the sun. And I would say that the moon was at a between uh, like a, a, like an eight o'clock uh, position. If you and then the sun was at like a well, was it a two or a three o'clock position somewhere? It was pretty close to all both in the same height in the sky. Now the the moon was half a moon. The dark side was at the sun's direction, and the light side was away from the sun. Does that make sense? So, in yeah. other words, when you're looking at the moon, you know you can see the moon part that's the furthest away from the sun, which logically makes no sense. If the sun and the moon are the same, <clears throat> you know, same up there in the same sky. Certainly, because the sun is at a, uh, I suppose, a further distance, uh-huh. that that, that uh, it should not look what I, I should not have been seeing what I'm seeing, and that's this is after I figured out and learned about the fact that the that the moon landing was 
a hoax. And I started studying this whole flat earth thing. And, um, because I, I really do believe it's the agenda at this point, why it's been pushed on us. That's why I call it 2015, the year of the flat earth. Because, and you talk about this whole kind of, it sounds an awful lot like a Hegelian principle of, you know, there's something in the middle is where it's really at. I mark, I don't believe it's even in the middle. I think it's something completely different than the middle, than the two, you know, the flat earth and the round earth thing. I think it's something completely different than what's been given to us. And probably might not even ever find out the truth until after we pass away. Um, but um, the thing is... Uh, I well, yeah, I actually say on the show, we the, the true uh, shape of the Earth is virtually impossible for a person to uh, to determine as far as a very high degree of accuracy. You know, well, let's take example, just one uh, data point, that would be the true curvature. How are you going to absolutely prove that? You know? Right. We don't have the proper reference point. We don't have enough information. If you just get off the planet, like I said, and look down, then we it's, that, that's real easy. But we can't infallibly trust anybody because you have to be able to infallibly prove um, that someone, their mind was not compartmentalized in these secret projects that they have all over the place, like in the military. And we know that they do that with astronauts. And uh, you don't have sufficient information about what happened or didn't happen with that individual astronaut's mind. We don't have that kind of information. This is like trying to infallibly prove when you take uh, infiltrators in the Christian community, what do they have or what do they don't have, an embedded Christian altar, and then you're going to determine the degree of programming. How the heck are you going to do that? You know something? If you are the person that's been compartmentalized, you can't even do it. And that illustrates, whoa, we can't do these kind of things. And this actually relates to a larger problem in Western society, which I call false certainty. It has to do with the subject of epistemology, um, you know, knowledge and what can be known, how it can be known. It's false because it's based on, uh, we'll call it presuppositionalism. Let's take an example. We um, Christians believe that God inspired the Bible. Okay? Now, there's no way for anybody to infallibly prove that. That's a massive assumption. When you try to infallibly prove anything before the 14th century or to try to prove anything infallibly now, I'm talking about infallibly, by any ancient text, there's no way that anybody in the public sector can do that without a time machine. And the way to illustrate that, nobody has sufficient information to know for certain if a single word in an ancient text was altered, or whether it wasn't, you're all you're basing everything on manuscript comparison. That's not going to solve the problem. You see, right. it's like trying to explain, um, you know, where man came from by positing the theory that our creators are actually aliens. Mm-hmm. That doesn't solve the problem, okay? Because who created them? You see that? You have yeah. to get back to the first cause. We don't have certainty. Now, a way to illustrate that, too, there's, this may be absurd to Christian mind, but there's no way to infallibly prove. There wasn't some, some kind of inferior celestial being that was very lofty, but not on the level of, um, you know, God the Father, who concocted the Bible um, for some obscure purpose to benefit mankind. Now, you have to be able to infallibly prove that did not happen. How are you going to do that? You know what I mean? 
Now, I believe, I believe these things, but I don't base them on external information. I base them on a relationship that I have with the Creator. That's a trust relationship. And somehow or another, along the way, we lost all that because Christianity has largely become a religion of the book, which somewhat curiously Christians ignore and watch television instead. Because they don't study. Right. Because, you know, for, at least for me, my faith, the irony in all this is as you study things and you see the inconsistencies uh, that are going on within the Word of God, mm-hmm. it actually has strengthened my faith in my Messiah. Uh-huh. So, uh, you know, I call like a, you know, because I don't know any better better way to say it. Uh, Yeshua, the Messiah, I still find it. You know, I know a lot of people will say that Jesus Christ. That's another thing you talk about someday, but I don't want to right now. That's not the right word, but it seems to work as well. I mean, from, it has to do with intent. That word right, my, has my power. My spiritual experience when I start falling on my face and crying, crying to God and and saying, "Listen, I, I am." A flawed man. I'm a sinner. I'm hopeless. I, I, I just, I've tried to fix myself. Uh, try to, to, you know, uh, be more than I, I, I can. I've bitten off more than I chew. I need your help. I really need to know, and I need to have faith in Jesus. I need, I need to know. And as time has gone on, my faith in my Messiah has grown, and keeps on growing. But my faith in humanity, and even in necessary written text, what we call the Bible, well, it hasn't. It's actually diminished. It was a weird experience. I never had this, you know, when I was a Mormon, I didn't believe in anything. I was just, you know, indoctrinated, just going through the motions. But um, this, with this, this round, I really do, my experience, it's like you say and I say, there's no way I can prove to you the truth of what I know, because it's an inner thing. It's a, and the thing is, it's not about even being accepted because I've been rejected by more people coming to this conclusion, walking this way, believing this way, than I ever did when I was part of a group or part of the world and all that. So it's not even about you know social pressure. Uh-huh. It's, you know what I'm saying? There's, I, all I can tell you is is that I am, you know, inwardly, spiritually, uh, mentally changing, and that I know I never would do on my own. That there's something greater than me that I I can't find any other answer, but this because I started calling on, you know, Heavenly Father. Yeah. Uh, Yahuwah in the name of Yahshua, the Messiah, Jesus Christ, and begging for some faith, begging for some hope. Not because I wanted, you know, you know, a fancy car and a wife and or anything of this world. I just wanted to know Him. And I think it's fascinating because it talks about in the Bible that most of us really don't have the desire to know Him. And I think that's the key in all of this as far as I've having... talked about the word desire a lot. That's what they're lacking is desire. And zeal. Yeah. Go ahead. So, and, um, yeah, so I think that's, you know, it's a really important... And once you have, at least for me, once I started having it, my eyes and my opened it's opened up in ways I never thought it would. And we go back to the cosmology thing. 
And I look at the fact, you know, uh, God had to prepare me all this way. I had to learn about the fake moon landing. Then I had to learn about the of these planets. And then I had to see a few things. And it's interesting, you and I have talked off and on, not very often, but we've interacted in my show and through uh, Hoaxbusters. Uh, and I never even listened to your show until last week, and I'm being honest with you. Mm-hmm. And I'm thinking about that. Why is that? Well, part of it, a big part of it was I was just so wrapped up in my own thing and, my, I guess, my own place and my own journey and, and figuring out the things I needed to figure out before I could even accept your premises. No, we sense? do. We throw around ideas and concepts that people haven't heard. Nobody debates that. And so it gives you something to think about and try to figure out, is this stuff true he's talking about? What the heck is this? <laughs> well, no, I mean, because you know, for me, you know, because now that I know that there's, you know, no one's saying I've never seen a planet um, that we look at the, the, what I've seen personally in the sky, the fact that the sun and moon are the same size and, and it, it, the probability of one being 93 million miles away and still being the same size or slim to none, etc. You know, I can now get this point. Now, I want to ask you a question because you brought it up a little bit. You talk about an artificial... Uh, a night sky, and what was the uh, fake? You, you talked about fake moons. Yeah. Uh, do, can you explain to me what you mean by that? Are you are you saying that they're all holograms? Because you know, regardless, uh, we don't know when, when I look at that, because when I when you hear you say that, it's it's what do you mean? Is, uh, well, I talk is, about. Um, I haven't thrown this term around too much. I develop terminology for everything because I know where our terms come from. But I talk about super technology. Now, super technology is something that, guess what, folks? You don't know anything about it. Now, I was just talking last night about a theoretical clean nuclear weapon. You simply don't have any information about it at all. You know nothing. You can't prove that they have this or they don't have it. Now, the evidence indicates that they did not use a dirty nuclear weapon in Japan. That couldn't have happened. But that doesn't mean that they were firebombing them. We need to have an intelligent discussion that they were using super technology, which you never hear anything about. Nothing. How do you know? Let me give you an example of what this is like. You can never prove who's running the show. Now, the reason is because no matter how lofty you go in your estimation of hierarchy, you can't prove that there isn't somebody behind them. You see that? Absolutely. Absolutely. You, you can't do that as a human. Now, the reason I keep pointing these things out is because um, we have an arrogant epistemology which has been foisted upon us in Western culture. Outside of Western culture, they have a much more uh, humble approach to knowledge. They don't have this desire to know everything. They don't. That's, that's the desire of science, by the way. And you've got the same thing in Western theology. This is why uh, in the Eastern Orthodox Church they never developed a systematic theology. And, uh, you know, they never did it in Judaism. And, in fact, the only systematic theology out there is actually in Western Christianity. And so your natural reaction is, well, that's bad. No. Okay? It's all about balance, you see, because they're suffering. What are we talking about at the most fundamental level? You know what we're talking about? Organized information. Is it bad to organize information? I don't think so. Because that would mean that disorganized information is superior. Now, stop and think about that. Well, that's, that's ludicrous, okay? But it's all about balance, you see, and you don't see balance 
One of the things I talk about is what they've done all through history is they drive people artificially into um, artificial polarizing constructs. This is a massive um, key to interpreting what the heck is going on because you will see patterns that are undeniable all through history. It has to do with what I call an undiscussed middle, which is provable because nobody's talking about it. And then you're going, why? How can this happen consistently? Because now we're in the area of mathematics again. And i got to go back to the artificial mind sky and the controlled system because I only got halfway there. But when you see these redundant patterns, you're talking about statistics, and that's mathematics. And when they appear consistently, what actually happens is you have to stand back and go, we live in a, in a, in a, in a system of control that is um, artificially altering information and spitting it out and uh, just obliterating certain discussions that don't happen at all. You can see this. In, people need to understand that Christianity theologically has been historically codified. But Now, that's not a theory. You can prove that because it's an established track record. Uh, certain beliefs are anathematized, and then as far as we know, with recorded history, they're not talked about anymore. Now, that's interesting because you can actually prove that. Now, it's possible that they were talked about, but we don't have any evidence. So you start to see these patterns develop over and over and over again. And what's, there's a lot of things that are not happening in uh, institutional Christianity. One of them is, this is the big one, one of the big ones is, first of all, Christianity has never been properly deconstructed. That's a very important word. I actually call myself a, a Christian deconstructionist. Now, what I mean by that is we're going to stop you know, defending Christianity as one true religion and comparing it with the world and all other false religions. Okay, We're going to look within and stop doing one other thing that is stopping us from actually looking at us and what we really are. One way to do that is compare us with Second Temple Judaism, which is a false religion. And the apostles indicate that it was false, Jesus and John the Baptist. And that's all they had. It's the best thing going. And Christians think that that couldn't possibly be false because then no one can get saved. That doesn't necessarily follow. That's simplistic thinking. Now, Christianity could be a false religion like Second Temple Judaism, which actually gives you Christ, the Bible, and the way the path of salvation, but it doesn't qualify is a biblically orthodox religion that holds up to a first century apostolic standard, which I actually don't believe it does. Okay? You've got this simplistic view of Christian apologists who uh, identify a non-Christian cult, like what they call Mormonism, is if you have an authoritative leader, and, um, and then you have one other thing, you deny one of the essentials of the biblical faith, and they call it a non-Christian cult. You're probably aware of that. Well, according to that definition, you would have a number of uh, Christian dominations because they don't hold up to a first-century standard for heresy. So Christianity has never been properly deconstructed, looking within. We don't do that. Now, here's the problem that we have is we are emotionally identifying with a group in a theological belief system, and then we're defending that 
that becomes our belief that we mostly identify. Then we criticize the other groups, the other belief systems. Okay? What we need to do is stand back and look at the whole construct and say what I believe that God would say. It's corrupt. But you'll notice that Christians can't do that. They emotionally identify with this religion. It's kind of like a club. You know, you, like a Freemasonry. I mean, Freemasons, they don't critique Freemasonry. You ever notice that? They just defend it. They don't see all the faults in it. Why do people do this? Because this is the um, a human failing. After the fall, there's this tension between the intellect and the emotional mind. And I believe as a devolutionist, this deteriorates through the centuries. And man is easily programmable in the modern era because he's primarily an emotional being. Okay? And so um, we're not critiquing Christianity like we should be. Go ahead. At this point of our de-evolution, that's what they're trying to create us. I mean, and is that what yours and, and mine and people like us, our struggle is to regain some of uh, what you call that balance, and part of it is to <laughs> gain back what our God-given uh, brain, mind, uh, ability to think, to critically think, to uh, see the world a little more clearly and not just be all about emotion. Mm-hmm. Which is the last thing that they, the, the controllers, want us to do is to start thinking. And it's fascinating when you see this. It's one of the the cycles that they do every generation or two. Is they got to purge the intellectuals. Have you ever noticed that? Oh yeah. Look what they did Nazi Germany. Yeah, everywhere. <laughs> over and over again. Mm-hmm. I mean, the history of the Roman Empire for the past two thousand. 2,500 years has been this. And so it's why are they so interested in purging the intellectual? I, it's, it's, a part of it could possibly be the fact that you and I are having this conversation. Well, uh, information lead... is the threat because knowledge is a power, and the common man doesn't understand that knowledge is power, and he doesn't understand that information is a threat. The way that I illustrate that, Michael, is uh, you have to understand from the Illuminati's perspective uh, a poor man that has genuine esoterica, which Christians don't think there's anything out there that's truly esoteric. Everything's been revealed. But if you had esoteric uh, information, um, you're a bigger threat than a multi-billionaire to the Illuminati. They're not worried about the multi-billionaire because it's impossible, in my estimation, to actually become a billionaire in a system of control uh, where you're competing against other uh, you know, bankers and stuff like that unless they allow it because it's a big club. Because there's a lot of perks and punishments. You can't rise that high. Just like in politicians, it's virtually impossible, apart from an act of God, to become president of the United States. I don't believe you can become a governor either. You know. Well, yeah. But, um, so there's overwhelming evidence that what you're saying is actually true. So. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> so. Well, let me go back to, um, to proving that we live in a system of control. Because I said I'm saying things that appear to be absurd to people. I said there's no way he's going to be able to do that. I said we can infallibly prove we live in a system of control, and I'm going to do that with mathematics, okay? Now, there's no way to prove uh, wrong what I said earlier about these stars. I mean, you're going to go out there and say, well, those stars aren't moving. Come on now. I mean, nobody's even done this before. And uh, you're going to have to acknowledge that the moon, whatever that thing is, (laughs) because you asked me, do I think it's holographic? I think they have superior technology technology. all this stuff about, you know, blue beam technology, CERN technology, you know, HARP, 
they've got something superior. They're not going to tell you. And it's absolutely amazing, these YouTube conspiracy theorists, they're stuck at that level because they're largely copying and pasting and circulating information like on a merry-go-round. There's very little creativity. There's a lot of borrowing because a big motivation to get something out but not do the foundational work, which is thinking. Now, people ask me, what, what do you do? The number one thing that I do is actually think. And I come up with the least ideas and sit in front of a computer. Most of them come in the early morning before I get out of bed or actually start praying. And that's the way it should be for everybody. But see, if you got to jump out of bed and go to that job, they got your whole day micro-engineered. They wake you up with this glaring alarm. <laughs> and uh, if you're not intelligent, that thing is pointing at you, you know, the LEDs, and uh, diminishing your sleep all night long. If you have one of those things, please point that thing away from you. You can research them on Google. Those things are diabolical. We talk about, you know, the bed springs you're, you're sleeping on. You can Google that, too. Uh, they are actually uh, frequency antenna that can be utilized for various types of mind control. But it's going to sync up with these uh, cell phone towers and stuff like that. And uh, there's ways to deal with all these things. But basically everything in your house is wrong, the general rule, unless it's a natural object. And, uh, and it's toxic. And our entire environment is becoming increasingly toxic and weaponized in a massive, quiet war, which is very subtle, and is primarily directed at Christians historically. And this quiet war, somewhat curiously, in my estimation, replaced the Inquisition. And that's a huge subject right there. It went underground. Well, the, and, the, the Inquisition never left. No, still, I, I, I knew you were going to say that, and I agree with you. I agree with the you. King, the Inquisition, the office of the yeah. Inquisition, the name has changed, but it's still there. It's still there. They tell us that it went, it ended just like they tell us that the British Empire came to an end. And what was the date when that happened? The British Empire came to an end? <laughs> I think the Vatican is working through the British Empire. So I think, I agree with you what you say about the Vatican, but I believe that uh, on a lower level, the British Empire is running the show. A uh, simple way to illustrate that is you can follow the money from American banks to the, the Bank of London, and then it goes to the Vatican Bank. So what does that tell you right there? Sure, that's that, and then you got the crown, and you got the bar, and it's all coming out of, of London. And uh, people talk about the Queen of England, and that uh, I mean, she bows down to the crown itself, so uh, which is all controlled by, um, yeah, it all goes to Rome. You know, it's amazing how much of well, first of all, the Jesuits have been in control of um, Britain for hundreds of years now, and even prior to them being controlled. Um, we look at the all kings and were uh, allowed, given that position by uh, the papacy, the Vatican, and people have to understand what the Vatican really is. So mm -hmm. the Vatican is literally is a, is a it's it's not only is it uh, the center of the serpent's power, but it's also a political institution. Mm -hmm. uh, first and foremost, when you look at the Pope, not only is he a, the token image of the beast, as I like to see it, and as a, 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 a the uh, a high priest, a of the uh, the black arts, um, but he's also considered the top politician in the world. So that's, that's the way it goes. So, and we go on and on and on about. It. And the fact of the matter, if you if you you call it black magic, 
Um, which is fine with me because then I think we're all talking about the same thing. It's just to maybe argue about details. But if you look at the fact, if you look at the priest class, along with how they've used fiat banking system, which basically <laughs> using the talismans and paper as a way of currency and control. Um, it's, it's quite fascinating. It's been going on for thousands of years, and there's, nothing's changed at all. Yeah. The only thing is, just it's changed the tech, yeah, the technology is just much more advanced, and it's now becoming quote-unquote digitalized, and just numbers on, yeah. on a screen, but uh, it's, it's, nothing's really changed. And they've been enslaving us the same way. As, as, uh, it, it's just uh, the same methods for thousands of years. Now, see, that's well, what in Europe. He's a white slave. They suppress that. Well, we're all, yeah. And where we are, we're all slaves. It's fascinating, too, when you're talking about this kind of, uh, oh gosh, what did you call it, a system of control. Mm-hmm. And how, did that, you know, I don't know if you ever have experienced this, Dave, but I mean, like, I was, there's times when I just walk outside, and it's not just, it doesn't matter if it's how humid it is or not. But spiritually, I feel suffocated. When I walk outside, I see things that the average person doesn't see. I see, I mean, it's because of my knowledge of horticulture and everything else, along with what I know now. And we literally, I mean, from the plants surrounding our house to the way our house is designed, the way our neighborhoods are designed, we are, if one would just be honest once, every aspect of your life is being deliberately controlled. Yeah, I call that micro-engineering. See, real quick, Michael, everything is done the wrong way on purpose. Absolutely. You could take a fifth grader, a reasonable intelligence, and they can come up with a better way to run the military. I'm talking about specific tasks, a specific task in the military that's been done the wrong way for decades or in the politics, and uh, they can come up with a better way. Uh, Are these people stupid? Or are they doing it the wrong way on purpose? Because there's really only two options. <laughs> well, here's a fine example. We're talking about the military. That always just blows my mind away. You probably have already figured this one out. Well, we look at D-Day and the landing there in Normandy. Uh-huh. And we look at the uh, the eastern now, coast. Now, that was June of... 6th, wasn't it? D-Day? Yeah. Well, there was there. there six right there. Yeah. What is that telling you? I, real quick, I just want to throw out some numbers because I mentioned the biblical canon. But in the Old Testament, there's 39 books, which is the opposite of number 93 that Crowley talked about so much. Not that he's that important, because I don't think he is, okay? And the other thing is that I don't believe that the Paul, Apostle Paul wrote the book of Hebrews, which most scholars agree. That means that he wrote, we have 13 extant epistles from Paul. So we got 66 books, 13 epistles, 39 Old Testament books. Hold it here. Those are all Illuminati numbers, that we're supposed to believe, be a coincidence theorist and believe that was just by happenstance? No. No. Uh, well, of course not. At this point, there's no way. There's no happenstance or coincidence. See, there's a tendency so. there. You've got to be careful. This is where knowledge comes in and balance to swing the other way and go, hold it. You know, they got these YouTube apologists. Well, the Bible's from the Illuminati. No, it's not. I mean, it is in a qualified sense, but I actually believe that our Bible is precisely, because I believe in the sovereign God of the Protestant Reformers, precisely what God wants us to have. And God allowed corruption as a corporate punishment 
Um, and withdrew spiritual light, which has a direct relationship with truth, and there's scriptures that can prove this, and uh, gave us what he wanted to have, and he worked through them. And I actually believe that these kings, these rulers, are appointed by him, and they're actually aware of it, and that's why they talk about um, divine right to rule. And Christians can't process. They go, God would never appoint these evil rulers. God appoints all evil rulers. Get over does it. He ap- does he appoint or allow? That's the problem. I'm going to explain that right now because we talk about that on the show. People are not thinking. That's a layperson mentality. These are just logical fallacies that you can't reconcile with Scripture. So there's a basic philosophical problem there. Okay. If you have a sovereign God that is omnipotent and he's capable of preventing anything from occurring, okay, if he chooses not to act, that requires the volition of his will. Okay? Can you see any way out of that? He's, he's going to do absolutely nothing. But that's a choice. And that choice involves a volition of his will, a movement of his will. Now, what is that? God willed something by doing nothing. So it's nonsensical to say, which lay people probably, commonly do because they don't think things through, that God didn't will it, he allowed it. There's no difference. Now, there's a qualitative difference, but you can't push it to the point where you say, God didn't will that. God wills everything in my estimation. It says in um, Romans 11:36, for from him and through him and to him, you know, for his glory, are all things. Doesn't qualify it. But well, I guess he, my point would be is this. Logically, we're, this is how I see it. Mm-hmm. And you, you can destroy it if, if it's not logical in your end. But uh, God um, appointed Satan to be the prince of this world and of the kingdoms of this world and all the governments and, the, and all the, the monarchies and everything else. Mm-hmm. That's in truth, it is uh, Satan that does the appointing. God allows Satan to do that. He's handed it over to him. The world of man, he's handed over to him because the fact of the matter is, in truth, uh, uh, we've rejected God and so, and as a whole, mm-hmm. including, I believe, 99% of people that call themselves Christians. They'll say otherwise, mm-hmm. but the, the fruits, <laughs> the proof is in the pudding, and it doesn't look a bit too good that they're actually... Mm-hmm. Truly desiring God, I think they're desiring the God that they want. Anyways, my point being is that, and I don't know, maybe I'm, we're on the same page, maybe we're not. Um, but it seems to me, if God appointed Satan to uh, tempt Christ with all the world kingdoms of the world, what does that tell you? Mm-hmm. That, I mean, am I right? I mean, I don't know. I mean, and then well, we what, don't know. what I'm yeah. saying is, I absolutely agree um, with the the Protestant reformers, and we're drifting farther, and farther away from that. And so they taught some unusual things that modern Christians absolutely deny. They want to believe that this devil is running around trying to overthrow God and defeat Him. And uh, the biblical view is that he is under the sovereign rule of God, his every action and movement of his will. Now, there's actually a right. way to prove this in the Bible, somewhat curiously, that Christians are blissfully unaware of. So what you do, you go to uh, Romans chapter 8, 
I didn't, you know, a lot of the stuff that I'm throwing, I didn't get the stuff from books or the internet. I got this through thinking. <laughs> okay. Now it says something in your Bible in Romans eight that Christians, all Christians, want to believe this, and that is, is that God will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able. Notice how they all want to believe that because they like to believe in good things. And the problem is with the bad things that make them feel bad emotionally. But that makes me feel good that God's in control. They want to believe that God's in control, but they don't believe He controls the devil. And that's that's where we run into problems here. Okay. And so um, <clears throat> now that here we got a problem with temptation. This is a side point, but Christians don't understand how to be delivered from temptation because typically you have to wait and persevere and do something that people don't do anymore. And that's called watch. Wait for God to deliver you, and guess what? Suffer. You don't hear this anymore in local churches. They got all these little programs, you know, one, two, three, four, five, and, and if you do all that, it's going to work for you. It doesn't work that way. Because you can't move God with the human will. Um, that's a different issue. Okay, so anyway, the only conceivable way that God could prevent you from... Uh, not being overwhelmed with temptation, and that's going to include persevering and waiting for him to deliver you, is if God is con is in control of all external causes that have to do with temptation, it's real simple, that would be the devil and his demons. Do Christians uh -huh. believe that? No. But that's what the Bible teaches. Now we've got to go back there. Do you really believe that? Because you wanted to believe it, now think about it. You see that? Aha! Uh -huh. Maybe you don't want to believe that because you don't want to believe that God controls the devil. Christians believe that God is trying to overthrow the devil, and that's a fool's errand. The devil, according to Job chapter 1 and, and 2... You, you keep on saying Christians believe that, but you and I don't believe that, yet we call ourselves Christians. So yeah. what are we? No. What are we? I mean, did you, well, you, you can get real hung up with the word Christian. I actually use it. I hang out with other people who are biblical-oriented right. and worship Yahweh, and they don't feel comfortable with that term. So it's not going to live or die over that term. Okay. You know, some people don't like just, it. There's well, problems no, I, just wonder, I just wonder what your, your opinion is about who uh, who we are, because really, I I don't like the term Christians. Yeah. For a lot of reasons, I don't like it. People say, well, what do you mean? Don't you believe in Jesus Christ and all that? And I'm like, well, yeah, but I don't believe in you. I don't believe in you people. I don't believe in your organizations. I don't believe in your uh, religions. I don't believe in your hierarchical structures. I don't believe how you're twisting the scriptures. And, well, now it's used uh, in the Bible, uh, but only in a negative or, or neutral context. What's that? Uh, Christians need to be aware of that. You know what I mean? Say that again. Well, I didn't miss that. It's used in the Bible, but only in a neutral or negative context. The, right, the reason I say neutral is because there's at least one passage that's controversial where it would be technically neutral or negative. Because the term is used by non-believers. They're, they're putting the label on God's people and calling them Christians. You see that? Yeah. So it is in the Bible, but... It, it's <laughs> uh, now, I hold to the view, this is a huge subject, that there was not a new religion in the first century. We completely misunderstood everything, pretty much. And that what we call Christianity is actually a sect of Judaism. And there's a lot of confusion about this, but that's a different subject. Well, we have all the time in the world to go in the direction you want to, brother. <laughs> At least we've got another uh, hour and a half. 
Uh, Would you want me to? Well, I, I need to illustrate how we live in the system control with the artificial night sky. Okay, you can do that. We got halfway there. Want me to do that right now? Sure, let's finish it up. Let's do that. Okay. Next. Now, I, 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 I have what's called Art Sky Apologetics. Art is just um, abbreviating the uh, you know, artificial because it's kind of a elongated term. Okay. Now, no one is gonna, in the public sector is going to be able to prove that that moon is genuine or the stars are real. You don't have um, the proper reference point. You're lacking information. So the best you can come up with now is an unprovable theory. But here's what we can prove. We can prove this infallibly. At this point, there is not a single authority in this institutionalized system that has any expert out there with any academic credentials, a plaque on the wall, and I can descend from there because I don't have to appeal to the top of academic, academia. There's nobody I out there. You know, I, want to, I hate to interrupt you, but just let you know uh, – I actually hung up, so I just got back on. So. Oh, okay. There's nobody out there that's acknowledging this um, this obvious phenomena. They're simply not looking at the sky. Now, there's a way to illustrate this. You can illustrate it by focusing on a single astronomer. He's not seeing what's right in front of him, and I know why, because I sun-gazed for years, and because of my institutionalized mind that couldn't process which was right in front of my face, um, I was seeing dark clouds behind the sun, but it wasn't compatible with my version of reality. This is the way the human mind works. The human mind is a product of hundreds of years of social engineering, and this is true. And even if you think it's not, you don't have enough information to disprove that because you don't have certainty about the past and what was happening what, and what wasn't happening. Just like you can't disprove that the Illuminati exists because um, – you can't do things like that as a puny little man. You can't uh, prove that God doesn't exist or prove that God's not hiding from you. How do you know? You arrogant Christian mind. <laughs> you know what I mean? Okay, so astronomers, they're completely clueless about this because they have an institutionalized mind and their textbook repeaters too. Just like a doctor who is seen every single day evidence that witnesses against what he believes, and he's killing people in his ignorance. And, but he believes that he's a medical deity because that gets reinforced every day. He's denying reality, and this is what we do when you have a highly programmed mind. You live in a cult. If you live in a cult, and I'm saying this entire society is a cultic system that I actually call the cult of society, and I'm going to prove that right now, okay? You don't know that you're in a cult, and you can't ask certain questions, because you can't process that. Your mind shuts down. You don't even get there. You don't try to refute it. You simply don't acknowledge reality across the board. Okay, so anyway, here's where things get interesting. Let's go to NASA, JPL. What are they doing to talk about this? Precisely nothing. Now, what's going to happen to these institutions? They automatically sink. They have no credibility. Because now we know they're involved with significant deception and error. They're either confused or they're in on it. They're programmed, too. Obviously, not all of them are, okay? And um, so now you're trying to figure out, okay, what is true with these people and what isn't? See, most people are distrusting NASA with any critical thinking. Well, NASA just crashed at your feet. When you start to see that all the stars are moving and nobody's talking about it, the Vatican goes down, too, so does the Mormon Church, and an entire institutional system and all of academia, they are either – completely ignorant 
and unqualified to even say anything about this because they got to go to first base and they haven't got there yet, or they're in on the game. And we know that some of them are, and I would say that's the minority. They control the hierarchy in all these institutions. Now, the way that you prove this is through uh, mathematics that have to do with redundant patterns, and this redundant pattern is ongoing silence. The patterns have to do with 24-hour periods that go by every day where nothing is said again. Another week goes by. Nothing. I saw this in 1997. It changed my whole world. I didn't change my cosmology. Well, I didn't see a cloud behind the moon. I saw behind one behind the sun. You don't want to look at the sun except for the first and last hour of the day. You can Google sun gazing. You can look towards the sun, though. Your eyes will tell you when it's marble, you know. You can look towards the sun. It's beneficial. Just don't look at it. But uh, the best way to see this, the easiest way, is to moon gaze. And uh, you just got to be persistent. And if you apply what you see with what I said, your reality is going to crash. The very fabric of your, your reality, which has to do with cosmology. That's why cosmology is important, because that's the structure of reality. You think that might be important? Well, you better believe it's important to them. And that's why they manufactured it. But they also did it for specific reasons to cover up sacred lands that the ancient people believed in. They give us outer space instead of a cosmic ocean. I'm just calling it cosmic because it's so vast. And that's actually a term that scholars use. You know? They all they, nobody has a problem, you know, scholars with the cosmic sea. They don't believe in it, obviously. They've been propagandized too. The scientific pseudoscience. And you can prove that all Christians as a general rule are under some kind of significant mind control. Because it is it true or is it not true that when they got indoctrinated, we call it education, they believed everything they were told as a general rule about science but rejected evolution. What else did they reject? I want to interject here with a question. When you yeah. say cosmic seas, are you uh, suggesting that what's above us is actually an ocean? No, a but little, there's, a little there's two different seas in the, in the Bible. There's a heavenly sea that has to do with the firmament, and there's a, there's an earthly sea, and they're both vast. Well, you know, I'm going to suggest something, because uh, I haven't really thought of it, but, the, well, the daytime is bright blue, night is dark. It's an awful lot like a body of water. Mm-hmm. Anyway. It probably relates to that to some degree. Now, I hold to the view, and I believe this is the ancient view, that there's actually two different sources for light. And this explains why there was light in Genesis before the sun was created, because the only real option for Christians to start to hypothesize about spiritual light, but stop and think about it, isn't it true that every single other thing that's created in the book of Genesis has to do with physicality? So why are you hypothesizing about spiritual light? Because you don't have any options. The ancient view, which has been forgotten, is that the, you can actually see this on Wikipedia, that the firmament has a crystalline structure, like glass-like to some degree, and light is able to permeate it, and you're actually looking at heavenly light that streams down from above. And uh, it's a bit of a problem to explain all that, but the ancient view, there's, there's more than one source of light. In fact, there's a lot of sources of light. They've covered all that. They've done that for an occult purpose, because in the ancient world, um, all of these sources of light were identified very closely with celestial beings. 
I talk about this over and over again. So they tell us that the moon is not self-luminous. They're usually telling us that the opposite of what is true. The same with the stars. The stars are, are luminous as well. You see, they have an individual luminous quality to them. And we've actually, we can actually prove, because we have technology available to the public sector that can detect subtle cosmic energies that actually stream down from these stars. That actually relates to the subject of astrology, which is not an ancient term. That's a created term that basically this has to do on a fundamental level, whether a person can be affected on a significant level by cosmic energies. Now, Christians already believe this because they believe, they won't say this, but they believe that there's not cosmic energy, because that, that sounds the new age there, Dave, but they'll say, well, lunar energy, they won't even say that because they don't like the word energy, but the moon is affecting a woman's menstrual period and the tides. Isn't this true that reasonably intelligent Christians believe this? Well, guess what? If you believe that, you're admitting that there's cosmic energy, which will define narrowly as a lunar, which is affecting you and everybody else on this planet. They don't like to talk about that. And I believe it's suppressed information because that's going to reveal some things. Well, it's not just the, the moon. The sun is qualitatively more important. But in the ancient world, they understood that stars emit cosmic energy that affect all biological things. There's actually an alchemical process in the soil that takes place with plants, okay? And um, in, in the common belief in the ancient world was what's called astrological fatalism, that there was these gods and goddesses who stood behind these cosmic forces, and these energies were mediated by them through the stars to influence humans. But we don't talk about that anymore. And I say, well, they were superstitious. Well, if you're devolutionist, you're always reaching to the ancient past uh, to find higher quality information, which is devolving and deteriorating. And if you're a conspiratorialist, you're, you're combining devolution with conspiratorial mind, you know perfectly well they're trying to cover things up. So you know what we have here? We have a big treasure hunt, a huge amount of data that's been suppressed. And then they sigh up Christians into believing, oh, there's nothing esoteric. That word makes me feel uncomfortable. So I'm not going to look, but I'm going to point my finger and throw out labels and say, that has to do with the occult. That's new age. That was a demon. They don't have any knowledge. They're just watching television, pointing fingers, believing what their pastor says. I'm supposed to respect their opinion? No. These are ignorant people that are actually under the judgment of God. And we don't know that just like the ancient Israelites didn't know it either. They thought that they had the stamp of God's approval. Did you know that every local church believes they have the stamp of God, God's approval? You know why? Because they're delusional. Now, how can we prove they're delusional? Here's a couple data points. Isn't it true or is it not true? And when you go to a Christian funeral, not only do the people believe that this person is going to heaven, but so does the pastor. Did you know that's a delusional belief system? Did you know it's also delusional when you have a pastor who says he has a vision, that's what he calls it, that has to do with um, building churches. Now, why is that a delusional belief? Because he believes that God is behind him. How are you going to prove that? 
because let's go to the scriptures, and you ask these people, what is your faith based on? They will always say the same thing. It's based on the Bible. Now, that's not true, because their faith is based on authoritative church councils and the non-biblical concept of a canon. Because if you don't believe in the 66 books, they will not even acknowledge that you're a Christian. This is a delusional belief because um, it's fantastical and it's actually superstitious. And it's actually propaganda, and I actually call it theological propaganda. It was manufactured. And, you know, there's good things about having a canon, because stop and think about not having a canon. But I'm saying that it's an artificial construct, which is not biblical, because it's, it's not in the Bible anywhere, folks. And there's no prophecy of authoritative church council in the future where all this is going to happen. That's not there either. Most Christians are so delusional, they believe that our canon was formed in a church council that never existed, because it didn't exist. You can go to Wikipedia again and find out that the Protestant canon was not officially formulated until, I think it was the year 1825. Because the original King James Bible actually had the Apocrypha. So when, when, where was this authoritative church council that determined the Protestant canon of 66 books which actually agrees with uh, Judaism as far as the Old Testament. Where was that authoritative canon? There wasn't one. But isn't that what Christians believe? Yeah. There's lots of uh, confused Christians who believe silly things like, um, well, the doctrine of Trinity was confirmed you know, at the Council of Nicaea. You'll hear this repeated over and over and over again. No. All they talked about, according to what we're told, was the heresy of Arianism and the dating of Easter. That's what Scar will tell you. So you have the common folk belief. You have what's called folk religion. And all religions have a folk religion. The beliefs of the common people, and you can quickly prove that they're largely delusional. Because, see, the common man, all through history, it's a self-evident fact. He doesn't research. He's not educated. This is true. And see, information is important because in a Christian context, there's a direct relationship between information and truth. How can that not be true? But in a local church, they're going to talk about love and faith in an unbalanced way where they, um, they overlook the importance of information and knowledge. That's all I can say. This is what I call Davism. Uh, you can't act correctly unless you know correctly, unless you perform a correct action by random chance or a superior being chooses to enlighten you. Now stop and think about whether it's important from a biblical perspective to act correctly. Well, the Bible says without holiness, no one will see the Lord. So you better believe if you're going to be holy, which you have to be, even though you're not saved by good works, you can't please God in the long term, without um, sanctifying your life. You know, in Romans chapter 2, it says, My name is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. And these are guys that are all into the Torah, the law, and they're blaspheming God. Well, what about us today? Because what we have in these local churches, from a first century apostolic view or opinion of Jesus... It's largely a bunch of hypocrites. And uh, that's the subject of this show, <laughs> is the state 
of Christianity. And, you know, I've said in my show recently that um, you look at the letters to the seven churches, and uh, only one of them uh, went without a rebuke, the, the Philadelphian church. You have to make a massive assumption that authoritative prophet would come up here and even um, rebuke anybody. We don't think about this. You've got to qualify for a rebuke. We're assuming that we would qualify. Is there any significant Christian group that would get away scot-free, like the Philadelphian church, and go, you know, you guys are doing great? I don't think so. Now, if that's true, that's telling you that we have a qualitatively inferior religion. I'm going to simplify it, make it an umbrella term, you know, in the first century religion. And we don't think about this because it is. And there's there's a way to prove it, okay? This... Religion, that's what you want to call it, it's not a biblical term, it has to be qualitatively inferior. For one simple reason, we don't have the apostles. You see? We have all these um, theological, textual conundrums that we virtually can't solve. We don't have enough information. You can prove this over and over again. Now, if we had the apostles here, immediate clarification. See, when he spoke to the Corinthians about the baptism for the dead, he didn't clarify that. They actually knew what he's talking about. Question, do we know what he's talking about? We're not sure. We have all these theories. And I theorize that one of these theories is probably true, but no one can prove it. You see? Now, when it talks about the um, <clears throat> the sign gifts that Pentecostals talk about so much, which I actually believe in, okay? And it talks about the gift of uh, wisdom and knowledge. What does it tell about us about these two gifts and the rest of Scripture? You know what? Precisely nothing. It gets worse. Um, Christianity, in its greatest theological height, as far as a historical reformation, did not know how to get saved, in my opinion. Let's see if you agree with me. I'm not putting you on the spot here, but do you believe in infant... Baptism? Uh, there's nothing... Or believe in baptism. There's nothing... I know, I've heard both arguments, uh-huh. uh, but scripturally I don't hear anything about infant baptisms. There's an easy way to prove it wrong, which nobody talks about. If the infant baptism is correct, because of the, the fragile nature of a child, it's absolutely necessary to have specific information for the correct ma- method of baptizing a child. Right. Because it can become physically unsafe to fully immerse a child. You're going to have somebody come along and do something crazy like that. So, there needs to be specific information how to correctly baptize a child. Question, is that information in the Bible anywhere? No. Nowhere. No. no. It sinks right there. That'll do it right there. You don't need to investigate further like Calvinists do and try to develop these elaborate theories based on typology, by the way. Well, I... Baptism relates to circumcision. Go ahead. Is there anywhere specifically in the Bible that says it's mandatory to be baptized in order to be saved? Well, it's related to salvation in Acts 2. The people ask him, what must we do to be saved? And he says, baptize... Be baptized and you repent. That's a very clear answer for a simple question. 
So it's normative. Uh, salvation is a very mysterious process. I don't hold to baptismal regeneration. I hold to what's called salvational baptism, which you don't hear about. This is a careful middle position that it's normative for salvation to accompany baptism. There can be exceptions. We Everybody knows there's one exception, the thief on the cross. Well, how many others? We don't know. See, now it's not, you know, a closed case because there's one exception, so how much this door is cracked? We don't have the information. So I'm careful to not take an absolute position. Okay. All right. Now, here we, here we go. Watch how this works. <clears throat> um, in... The scholars are going to agree whether they um, have a reformed mentality or not. They're pretty much forced to agree because there's no real historical competition. That the Protestant reformers, uh, Reformation is the greatest restoration of apostolic truth, even though there's actually quite a few problems on the way, to say the very least. And we're going to run into one right, right, right now. This is kind of shocking. Okay, so you're agreeing with me. And most Christians today, they don't have a problem with it. You know, popular Christianity, they don't, they don't believe in infant baptism. Those are the older traditional denominations that are kind of dying out. You know, we can go through a list of them, but we don't need to. Some curiously, even Methodism believed in that, because Wesley followed the Anglican Church. See, that's where he got that. Okay, so let's look at the state of Christianity. That's what we were going to do in this podcast. At the time of the Protestant Reformation... So we know for certain that the Eastern Orthodox Church, which, if you're going to call them a denomination, they're the second largest denomination, they clearly believe in infant baptism. Let's go to the Roman Church. They believe in infant baptism. So now you have a, rest, a restoration of biblical truth. Let's go to Luther. What did he believe? Same thing. Okay. And so Lutheranism has followed him to this day. And now what about um, the Calvinist reformers that followed uh, Swingley and... Uh, Calvin, same thing, okay? Infant baptism. Now, let's go to the Church of England, which is very Calvinistic historically. You can prove that by looking at the Book of Common Prayer and the 39 Articles, which are strongly Calvinistic. Either they don't pay attention to that stuff today. They haven't changed it yet. Well, guess what? They believe in infant baptism. At this point, you're going, well, hold it here. Who, who, who didn't believe in it? Well, I can tell you. The Anabaptists, and they were they were persecuted by a state-run church, which is actually satanic, and they actually had specific punishments uh, when they died to punish them. Like their last memory was to, I'm, you're being punished because you believe in this heresy. And what was that heresy? Believers' baptism. Does this sound satanic to anybody? Does it sound biblical? Now, this is where things get strange. Here's the question. Can you get saved through infant baptism? No. That's a false doctrine. Okay, let's go back and look at the big picture. Christianity, its greatest theological height, didn't even know how to get saved. See that? Now think about a way out of that. Because it's too simple, too self-evident, and that will tell you something about the nature of Christianity. We're always defending the one true religion? Something's haywire here. See that? Mm-hmm. I'm going to push that envelope a little further. We talk a lot about a lot of things that are not in the Bible. The second most important thing, the decision that you should make in your life, is who you're going to marry. Okay? 
Now, the Bible says precisely nothing about how to get married properly. I'm talking about the actual quote-unquote ritual, which Judaism has, but it's not found in the Bible anywhere. How do you get married? Because this is the second most important thing. Where is it at in the Bible? Nowhere. Uh, It gets even stranger. You're going to have problems trying to disprove that the most important doctrine in the entire Bible is not the doctrine that Trinitarians ignore. I'm not an Arian. I'm not a modalist. The The doctrine that Trinitarians ignore, that God is one. That's the Shema that is the most important commandment in Judaism, which is exalted and ignored in Christianity. Now, I can prove it's ignored, because um, you will see Christians repeating what they've heard and borrowing it and circulating it round and round and merry round. And the most important commandment, according to Jesus, you know, was love your neighbor as yourself. Everybody knows that, right? Actually, go back and look at the text in Matthew 13. Oh, he mentions something before that that you're not talking about. And what was that? The most important doctrine in Judaism, that God is one. Which actually says Yahweh is one. Now, you need to um, study that on your own time, because this is mentioned in a number of places in the Bible. And the Apostle James takes that doctrine in isolation and selects it as a standard for orthodoxy. He says, you believe that God is one. You do well. Simply because you believe that one doctrine, which Christians ignore. Okay? And um, he commends them, but then he says, "Uh uh-huh, but even the devils believe that and tremble. You see that? So he's complimenting them and then bringing proper respect. Now, here's the problem. You're going to run into problems trying to say that's not the most important doctrine because it's quite clear in Scripture. And it's also clear that Christians are ignoring it by how they uh, ignore Jesus, what he said first in Matthew 13. uh, Is it Matthew 11 or 13? I don't know. Wherever that's at. Uh, I think it might be Matthew 11. Because when he talked about, you know, love your neighbor as yourself, he was quoting Deuteronomy 6.5. Christians ignore what he said in Deuteronomy 6.4. And we know that now that I'm pointing it out. You go, that's true. Watch what happens now. So, I'm making the case that this is the most important biblical doctrine in both the Old Testament and the New Testament, because there's evidence in both places. Now step back and look at this disaster. What pertinent information do we have about this most important doctrine in Scripture? Clarification. You know what we have? Almost nothing. We have one statement by uh, Jesus in... uh, John 10.30, he says, I and the Father are one, and I'm going to assume, I can't absolutely prove, when he talks about that oneness, it's probably talking about the same doctrine, but we can't absolutely be certain. Now, check this out. What this means, the most important doctrine in the entire Bible, we don't have specific information about that doctrine. And this is going to crash your whole version of reality when you believe, well, we have all the information we need. What did I just say about marriage? You see that? It gets worse. Now, watch what happens when we go to baptism. You've got the same problem with baptism. Nowhere in the Bible, somewhat shockingly, 
it's almost like, oh my God, you got to be kidding me! I'm gonna, I, I, this is hard to believe. I got to get that Bible out and go through it. Does it tell you how to be baptized properly? This is shocking, because the Bible associates salvation with uh, baptism, but it doesn't tell you how to get baptized. And I, I could go in a lot of different directions with that. Okay, for instance, um, it talks about the fundamentals of the Christian faith in uh, Hebrews chapter six. And it uses this term called washings. That's the best way to translate it. Remember, they had ceremonial washings. But it doesn't give us any specific information about these washings, which is in the plural. What are we supposed to do? How do we do it the right way? Now, in the post-apostolic era, or medieval era, during the time of the Church Fathers, they had all these medieval painting, or paintings of... Um, <clears throat> Uh, people being baptized, they were standing in the water, and they were actually pouring water over their head. And I actually believe that's theological propaganda. I, I, I believe in full immersion, okay? And John Calvin, he tried to push the envelope because he saw the problem. He tried to, and a lot of people have done this. They agree with me about immersion, and they try, the only thing they really focus on is to try to say that the word means immersion, because that's all you have. There's no actual depiction uh, of a person being fully immersed or that you need to do this, this is the proper means, it doesn't actually tell you how to do it the right way. This is shocking. Because this has to do with what's called orthopraxy. And that means, you know, the word orthodox means right or correct in reference to doctrine. This has to do with correct practice. The Bible doesn't tell you how to correctly practice Christianity any more than it tells you how to correctly marry a woman. The information is not there, but people assume that it is. Now, you know why they're doing that? Because they live in a cultic system that makes massive assumptions, and they actually have a cultic mind that is largely incapable of thinking for itself. The evidence for this is everywhere. And you know how many historical figures are talking about this? Nobody. And there's a way to prove that. Someone needs to come up... <clears throat> with a historical figure that has approached Christianity, not just de deconstructing it, which hasn't happened either, because name that historical figure, okay? This has to be significant. See how the word to use the word significant? But has looked at the development of Christianity over the centuries from a conspiratorial perspective. I want to clarify what I mean. We're going to talk about theological propaganda, which nobody's talking about, well, oh, there's no theological propaganda. People would laugh. they go, what are you talking about? God wouldn't allow something like that. You ever heard of a chemtrail, sir? Because once you figure out that God's allowing chemtrails and Christians, uh, massive die-offs in local churches through chemotherapy, these people die of ignorance. The pastor leads them right to the doctor. The doctor kills them in six months. What is God doing to help these people? Because you can pray to your blue in the face, and I believe in supernatural healing. These people are dying in a mass. You know what they're lacking? Favor of God. Now, the Bible prophesies that God's favor will return in an eschatological sense to Israel. And it hasn't happened yet. You know, there's a way to illustrate that. You go to the book of Ezekiel, and you see the cloud of glory that left the temple. And everybody's going to agree, even a preterist, that that was a historical event. And it had to do with, um, you know, it's different opinions. But generally, 
the lesser temple that replaced Solomon's temple. Some people talk about a third temple during that era, but generally it's called the second temple. Okay, so he saw that. It was a literal event. It could have been visionary, but it was an event that occurred historically. Okay? Now, we got all these people running around, especially in uh, Reformed theology, that has to do with replacement theology, where they have to spiritualize all these texts to maintain the delusionary belief that every single prophetic verse in the Old Testament applies to the church, has nothing whatsoever to do with Israel. You know where we got that belief? The Roman Catholic Church. And I'm calling it out. People need to do research. There's people out there that are slamming the Roman Catholic Church, but they're still holding on to Roman Catholic propaganda. Now let's look at the Protestants again, okay? Let's see if they're critically thinking. First of all, there have been no significant changes in the doctrine of the Trinity or Christology since the Council of Chalcedon, which supposedly took in the fifth place in the fifth century. Nothing. Okay, so we've got it all figured out. Well, of course. And that's why I say, well, it's all been codified. You see? You've got a highly sophisticated um, social engineers that are actually biologically superior. They can pull this stuff off, especially when they get off a good, a good start in the medieval era. Okay? And... Um, the thing that the Protestant reformers failed at is that they basically had this construct, which you and I agree with, that the uh, Roman Catholic institutional system and the hierarchy was basically run by Satan. Okay, And yet they have this um, strange dialect where they believe that all the Roman Catholic uh, church councils were absolutely authoritative and... <laughs> And guided by God infallibly, and let me just say something so everyone can understand this. This is a delusional belief, which no human being can prove outside of Illuminati, that um, these church councils that determine our canon, they hold to this belief, which no human can prove outside of Illuminati, that these church councils were infallibly guided by God. Now, this delusional belief, which no one can prove, was held by the Protestant Reformers, and the reason we know that because they didn't make any significant changes. Do you see a problem? Oh, you better believe it. Now, here's the thing when we talk about theological risk. We live in a system of control where you're supposed to believe what you're told. We see evidence for that everywhere today and all through the centuries in a false education system where all you're supposed to do is internalize information and spit it back. If you believe what you're told and agree with what they tell you is true, you'll see the greatest variance in history, the most uncertainty, and the greatest certainty in mathematics. In between, there's a lot of variance, okay? They're usually lying to you about history because they don't have to tell you the truth unless God actually makes them. These guys are black magicians, in my opinion. They will never tell you the truth unless God makes them, or that's an interesting process how that works. It uh, flows down through hierarchy, okay? Uh, or they will tell you, um, they'll sacrifice lesser information. And we know they do this. They do this in the CIA, you know what I mean? Uh, to get you to swallow the big lie. Okay? Because in their satanic mind, it makes virtually no sense whatsoever to tell you the truth about anything. Because you know why? That's against their religion. See, in their religion, 
evil is good, and good is evil. So from the perspective of a black magician, what is his motivation for telling you the truth at any significant level? He doesn't have any motivation. Now ask yourself this question. How many Christians are thinking about this during the course of their life? About as many Christians that are pastors who never even seriously ponder the possibility that they could have highly organized, sophisticated Satanists that have infiltrated their own church, are actually working in the nursery, putting curses on children, and uh, they're up there leading the prayers. And that's why the prayers seem so dead. It's like, what in the heck's going on around this place? You know what I mean? This is child's play because Christians historically have been unbelievably naive by anything remotely related to conspiracies. And uh, they're just having a field day. Now, the reason this is going on is because what we call Christianity or the church is under a corporate punishment from God. Now, this is where things get interesting. You say, well, that's a theory of your days. That sounds like a theological hobby horse. No, that's a, a provable fact. Now, the reason you can prove it <clears throat> is because you don't need the Bible. This is where things get interesting. All this conspiratorial information is actually very valuable if you know what to do with it. Do you know that God is allowing us to be sprayed like an insect with chemtrails? Our, our uh, food is poisoned. Our water is poisoned. Our air is poisoned. In fact, forget about all the poison. What is there that hasn't been tampered with on a significant level? Because I'm saying there, there isn't anything. Right. Uh, it's all been tampered with, and God allowed them to do it. And you know what that is from a, uh, a theological perspective? That's what's called a judgment from God. Now, I'm an Augustinian, which is an older uh, theological belief system that preceded Calvinism. Okay? And I disagree with Calvinists in significant areas. But both of us, and this includes the Lutheran branch, the Protestant reformers, we all believe in the importance of judgment and punishment. And, by the way, this relates to curses, which Christians refuse to acknowledge, because they are so delusional, they actually deny reality and deny the self-evident fact of uh, devolution everywhere on a biological level, they actually deny uh, that we're under a Genesis 3 curse because they just want to have a, um, a hopeful belief that everything is getting better and better day by day so I can feel better emotionally, I'm assuming, because Jesus went to the cross and made it all better. Well, Jesus went to the cross, and I believe that everything is filtered through the cross, everything that has to do with the Genesis creation. But... You've got to virtually deny reality and say we're not under a Genesis 3 curse. Now, what I'm saying is that Christians are under a curse. Go back to Genesis 3 and ask yourself this question. What has changed? Because if you're a devolutionist, you're going to hold it here. Women's menstrual... Uh, no, excuse me. They're, uh, well, that's another subject. That's deteriorating, too. We've talked about that. But their they're, uh, they're pains in childbearing... It's not getting better. It's getting worse. You know what I mean? And um, everything is getting more difficult. But the fact is, I mean, we're still aging, just like Jesus was, by the way. And we're still dying. Well, why do we age and why do we die? Genesis 3 curse. You see that? 
So it, you put these two data points together, that Jesus went to the cross, we're still under Genesis 3 curse, it's pretty obvious that these things are fulfilled eschatologically in stages. And I believe this has to do with the restoration of Israel, which Christians don't seem to understand, because they have been psyoped by Roman Catholic propaganda. There's a big word called supersessionism, and that has to do <clears throat> with twisting all these texts that apply to Israel and make them apply instead to the Gentile-dominated church. Or the other version of propaganda, which is most what most Christians believe today, historically almost all Christians believed in um, <clears throat> what we call replacement theology. And they're twisting all these texts. I'll give you an example. Okay? In Ezekiel 47, it talks about the restoration of the 12 tribes to the land and you know, uh, geographical land allotments, just like in the book of Joshua. The replacement theologian says, oh, well, that applies to the church. So these are not actual um, 12 literal tribes, um, and they're not 12 you know, geographical regions. You see, each name of these geographical religions, it has some deep spiritual meaning, because it's all figurative. Don't you understand? This is a metaphor. Okay, so you take these replacement theologians, and you put them in different rooms, and you, you tell us what is the deep meaning about these um, different geographical terms. And while you're at it, there's a tremendous amount of detail about this uh, temple in the book of Ezekiel. It's supposed to be rebuilt. Okay? And uh, tell us what all that means, too, because you're not taking anything literally because you don't believe in a literal temple. So come back and uh, show us your research. You know what's going to happen? You're going to have a massive amount of contradictions, which is going to prove, oh, this is not from the Holy Spirit. This is a man-made interpretation. So going back to um, the book of Ezekiel, uh, Ezekiel sees what some people call the Shekinah glory, which is not a biblical term, but it's a Hebrew term, returning to the temple. The glory is returning. You know what that glory symbolizes? The favor of God. Now, has that happened yet? No. We don't have the favor of God, and that's why we're getting sprayed by chemtrails, and we're being devastated by uh, diabolical poisons. Uh, just the fact that we have chemicals. You know what a chemical is? It's a poison. And you know what that poison is? It's a weapon. And you know who that weapon is directed at? Qualitatively, guess who, folks? A Christian. And there's nobody talking about this. And the reason I am, because I learned how to think straight, because Christians are so unbelievably stupid, they don't even understand that there are highly organized people out there below the devil's spiritual hierarchy that are highly organized, and they actually know who the enemy is. And guess who the enemy is? You. Evil men, highly organized, with plenty of funding and more than enough motivation. Now, as you go back through the centuries, point out some Christians that are talking about this at any significant level. Now, let me illustrate that. Show me a single Christian. Let's just make it simple. Before the mid-20th century, all through history, that is talking about uh, the nature of the church from a conspiratorial perspective that's significant. Because I'm telling you, there is nobody. Now, the only way that can be true is if God has blinded his own people. And if that's true, we're under a corporate judgment, and it's the same old show. Because God has done this kind of thing before. 
you see. In the book of Lamentations, Jeremiah, who was the most, you could theorize, he was along with him and Ezekiel, the most righteous people in the land. Uh, Ezekiel was uh, in exile. But um, God had abandoned these people. He told Jeremiah, he says, do not pray for them. And in, in a corporate judgment, everybody suffers. There's no way to get out from it. Now look around at this toxic environment. And you're going to go to some extreme to say, well, God doesn't have anything to do with this. He's just allowing it. It's all from the devil. Hello? Are you tuned in with reality or are you delusional too? Because I'm telling you, Christians are delusional and actually hold to the view that essentially everyone's delusional. And the reason we're delusional is actually a product of the fall. We lost our basic reasoning abilities. And we've become a mockery of our own self. And we're sinking farther and farther. And it's getting to the point now. Um, the propaganda that it's being foisted upon people is so outrageous that it's become laughable, if you have any common sense at all. So because, naturally, I, I'm going to ask you this question. I might as well uh-huh. that before we get too far ahead. Uh, so you're, are you suggesting that what we're seeing over in Israel is biblical from Ezekiel, and that it's the establishment of, okay, um, of Israel? There's, there are significant passages. The primary one is in uh, Ezekiel 20, like 33 onward, where it talks about a physical exodus that's compared with the first exodus. There's these comparison passages where it actually mentions the first exodus, and it talks about this other exodus. You always have a problem if you're going to acknowledge that that first exodus was literal, of trying to spiritualize the second event. Now, now you're talking about the first exodus, that one being with Moses? Out of, out of Egypt. Yeah. And, if you uh, look at Ezekiel 20, which Christians ignore, now here, here's a way to explain all this. Um, everybody acknowledges, including uh, Preterists, that there was a historical gathering of God's people. It happened at different stages first with the northern tribes that went to Assyria, and then later with uh, the Judahites in the southern kingdom that went to Babylon in exile. Okay, he physically scattered his people in different stages, and there's later stages too that are important. Okay, and But the Bible says over and over that he's going to gather them. Okay, So the replacement theologian, this is very interesting how they twist the text like a Jehovah's Witnesses. They will acknowledge, because see, here's what's important. If you go to Ezekiel 20, you're going to see the word scatter and gather in the same text, immediate context. You've got a massive problem, because you cannot come out there and say, well, you know, the first the gathering was, was a literal event. We all acknowledge that. Now, the term is diaspora. It's a Greek word. It means dispersion. That's actually in Bibles. You'll see that in James 1.1. 1, 1. Uh, it's typically translated in all Bibles as either diaspora or dispersion. That's what it means, is dispersion. It's a Greek word, okay? And so, but then they're going to say, well, we don't believe in a literal gathering. See, if you're an amillennialist, you don't believe that. Now, if you take a head count, most people don't know this. This is a fact. We're not talking about regeneration here. Just a sheer head count of professing Christians, the great bulk of them, somewhat curiously, have actually been amillennial. You know, the uh, Roman church has always been amillennial. And guess what? The Lutherans were too. And guess what Calvin was? And Amillennialist. So where did all this premillennial stuff come from? Well, it actually goes back to the Millerite movement, somewhat curiously. 
around that time began to be popular. I actually believe it had to do with English Jesuits who created two false religious movements. They had to do with charismatic phenomena um, called the Urbanites and the Darbyites. And then a, uh, a false Bible commentary called the Schofield Bible, and he was an agent too. And um, this is what's called dispensational theology, which I call dispensational propaganda. And uh, a term you can identify with is Christian Zionism. There's a biblical Zionism. There's a false Zionism. This basically has to do with popular um, media-pushed, left-behind belief system. Now ask yourself this question. In a system of control, which can be proven by the uh, artificial night sky, just like you you know that the, they're going to put – evolution has to be false without any investigation. You don't have to investigate it because they're only offering you one thing. So in a system of control, that's going to be false by default. Now, the same thing is with a perfectly spherical Earth. Don't bother to investigate. I don't care how many people believe it in this cult. I'm proving these people can't think out of a box. They just basically believe what they're told and try to live a comfortable life that is focused on two things, the pursuit of pleasure and materialism. That's the great majority of mankind. I don't care if they're in a Western culture or not, which is even worse. They're interested in thinking because that takes energy, and these people are fundamentally fundamentally lazy, and uh, that's a product of the fall and ongoing devolution. Okay, so, you know, there's problems everywhere, and what we're seeing is that people are not pointing out all of these things that I am pointing out, and that right, right there will tell you that something's wrong. It also validates... This full-time research that I did. You see, God was showing me something. Because basically what I'm doing here is showing one self-evident fact after another. There's a general rule people are not talking about. And um, it really is somewhat disconcerting that Christians could be that blind. Uh, because all of these things are important. But we know they're not talking about it. That's actually I, ongoing I, I, realizing. I, I, My God, all these things Dave's talking about, people are not talking about this. So the question is, is it important? Because you know, there's, some, there's some Christians out there that have kind of um, this magical thinking. Oh, this all has to do with conspiracy theories. None of this is important. Did you listen to anything I said? Dave, I don't want to be rude here, but you know I mean? it doesn't sound like you answered my question. Oh, what, what was the question? Uh, that what we're seeing over in Israel is... Oh, yeah. The representation of what you're saying of the gathering of okay, okay. Because um, I don't, I don't buy into it. I don't buy that it is. But it's, well, it's, yeah, it's, I don't believe it. It's uh, see, here's the thing, Satan. Anything that is uh, important, we know that he apes God, just as a general principle. So anything that is important, he's going to have an alternative that's basically fake, a deception. Right. So ask yourself this question. Um, is the subject of Israel and God's people important? Yes. That's why there's fake Jews that people don't talk about. And there's a fake Israel. Now, I will go so far as to say the geographical location is false. You see, well, that's a radical conspiracy theory there, Dave. Well, for most people it is. But they had the ability to shift it geographically in the medieval era because people were not permitted to travel. They could do what they wanted to. And I actually believe that they did that. It was farther north. And they used the... Um, You're like in, the, the Vatican era. created the uh, Islamic world, and they sat 
on top of uh, the Holy Land. There's a simple way to get suspicious about this, very least. That is not the beautiful land, because it's qualitatively inferior. The only way you can pull that rabbit out of the hat, because the Bible talks about the beautiful land, is to say that God judged it, and that's why it's inferior, because the land is inferior. So where, where, if you compare see, it with, with Western where, Turkey... Where is it located at? Far, I actually believe it's in... Uh, I can tell you exactly. This is the third time I've done this publicly. Uh, Judah was located in Western Turkey. There's a lot of evidence for this now. Uh-huh. And uh, Israel was located primarily under the Black Sea, and as far as landmass, primarily in Bulgaria and South East Romania. Uh-huh. But um, uh-huh. Solomon had an empire, in my opinion, but he had a larger territories, and so did David, by the way. And I actually uh, believe that they extended as far as the Adriatic Sea. You know, we used to have Yugoslavia. They owned all of that. I'm not laughing at you, by the way, when I chuckle by that, because it's, it's very plausible that it's definitely uh, very plausible that it's further north. Mm-hmm. And, um, we, yeah. And well, there's very, things that you can't it's, reconcile in Bible. It's extremely plausible that we actually don't even know where that where it is at this point. Yeah. Well, you know about, what you do? You start with the temple. It's a couple thousand years mm-hmm. of, of it's very easy. Yeah. To you start with the temple, go with something small, and figure out, okay, they're lying to me about that. Now, what else are they lying to me about? Now, Jesus said that every stone will be thrown down. You go over there, and what do they have? It's wailing wall. Now, hold it here. Do you see a conflict with Scripture? Yes. yes, Now, some people, when they become aware of it, they say, well, technically that is not the temple. It was this external... Okay, prove that. The fact is, is people are believing that that is part of the temple structure, and uh, you can't prove that. That's a massive assumption. So that's an unknown. So how do you know that that's the location? Because what can you know? Well, basically, you can't know a heck of a lot. But you see... You should be suspicious because they would be highly motivated to cover up the location of the Holy Land. And I actually said earlier, they created the false cosmology, I'm saying this you know, theoretically, this is what I believe, to cover up the true nature of the um, uh, you know, eastern paradisical land, as well as this western land, which is sacred to them. We can't find it. We can't even... Christians are so confused. They don't understand that in the Bible there's an up... And there's a down. The underworld is down. It's a subterranean, cavernous region which everybody believed in the ancient world. They didn't have a problem with that. It's below your feet. Christians don't believe that as a general rule. Okay? And then the Bible says everywhere that heaven is up. God is looking down. Now, you've got to qualify that because God is everywhere. Okay? But, you know, the earth is its footstool. I mean, it does this over and over. And Christians just ignore it. They believe that Australians are standing upside down on a Hollywood sphere. This is nonsensical. To the ancient mind, this is absurd. You know what I mean? To the ancient mind. Well, they'd be laughing. 99.9% of the world does at this point. The, the Jesuits have done a masterful job, or the, the black magicians that you talk about, about convincing the world. That yeah, they have brilliant satanic minds. <laughs> when you convince the whole world that you're living on a, on a ball, and there's nothing to prove that. Yeah, people are confused about why they would be so motivated to... Um, to get so people uh, 
so far away from the truth. But what they're trying to do is disorient people as much as possible. They don't know whether they're coming or going. So I have what I call 180-degree propaganda. It's the exact opposite. And you see this religion of opposites. You already mentioned this earlier. They tell you the opposite of what's true. And you'll actually see a pattern. It's the exact opposite of what reality. You can almost so, start looking for it. So we also, that the law of reversal, is that the same thing? Now, you know one of the reasons why they do that is because they have these big satanic egos, and these people are black magicians, and they wield the power of illusion. They take great pride in manufacturing an illusion that people will believe that has no basis with reality. Because they look at what we did. I've actually posited the theory that they um, they have like a competition. and say, um, you know, I bet you you can't make them believe this. And they go, uh, let me think about that. Um, I bet you I can. I'm going to go do it. And they have made, they've got these famous quotes where they said the belief, you know, historically, the pe- generally the people will believe what they're told. And it's true. Isn't it true that people believe that the earth is a perfect sphere and, it, and they did not question it when they went to the school? And they also believed that they were that evolution was true unless they were a Christian. They rejected it and then and then believed everything else that they were told. See, we're seeing redundant believe evidence that people don't know how to process information. <laughs> they don't know how to think. They haven't learned. They don't have the skill. It's a skill. It's learned. They do not teach you in school. No, it's, it's school is designed to do to crush your critical thinking. Now, so I'm you're not going to learn from watching television, so when does it happen? It doesn't happen. I honestly, well, I can only speak for myself, and it take, mm-hmm. I really, it took an act of God. And if I think about prior to four years ago, I was a man of the world, I was a musician, an artist, all about the women and everything else, myself, you know. Did you say you were I a musician? Musician. Oh, okay. Played music, wrote a lot of music, and all that kind of stuff. Anyways, um... Uh, you know, man of the world, and um, it, it literally took an act of God. And then, not only, like you're talking about slowing you down, the uh, multiple sclerosis, I believe, is an act of God. I was really getting to point. I was getting heavy into this, uh, the New Age stuff, and uh, the spiritualism that's out there. You know, the, that version of it, and um, and I was, I got struck with that mess. Right, things were really getting crazy, and uh, it then it took that was six years ago, and then it took another two years of me, of course, to keep on doing what I was doing, even with the MS. But the MS, along with the breakup of my with my son's mother, and then having my son, of course, uh, the past four years has forced me. I literally had to God had to literally. Uh, re-educate me basically from the ground up as like, as a baby, literally. I'm 47 years old, and I had to really relearn everything because I never learned. You know, I could not have even had even close to this conversation with you two years ago, and definitely couldn't have had it four years ago. So it's just been at the thousands of hours that he's forced me not only – you know, the internet, read books, and just enforcing me to, to to look at the world. Yeah, that's why properly. I say you have to qualify to be able to process the information. And that's what we call yeah. learning how to think straight. That that can take years. Yeah, and I think it takes an act of God because I think uh, I really do. I, I mean, I can only say for myself. I I'm sure you sound like you've had a similar type of experience. An act of God has put you in this position. 
mm-hmm. to allow you to even think. I think that it's we live in such a satanic web of confusion and time constraints and mind control and time control and everything else that goes along with it that literally uh, he has to literally pretty much he has to knock you over the head <laughs> literally and physically uh, which makes you wonder to think about uh, this whole thing about uh, predestination really for me I mean uh, it, and it's why you Dave why me well, I'm a predestinator. Was, was it really our choice at all, really? When I think back at it, I mean, I guess I could have fought, I fought it and fought it as much as I could until, you know, it destroyed my life and made me sick and forced me to finally fall on my face. Well, I believe that the non-predestinarian simply refuses uh, to think because he has significant emotional blockages. Now, let me illustrate why. He has virtually no explanation whatsoever to explain the vast, complex typology. You can get great big, huge theological works on these things. I got one of them. There's typology all through the Bible. You're primarily the Old Testament, obviously, because it's pointing to Christ. This has to be done with absolute precision. You have to have precise influence over historical figures, or it's not happening, baby. Now, the same thing is true with Bible prophecy. It's not like, you know... 99% um, of the time it's going to work, it has to work all the time. Now, the scripture actually talks about an appointed end. And what is that? Just like Jesus talked about the last day, which is what? Uh, The last day in a succession of days in a particular age. Okay? And there's specific events that have been um, predestined to occur on that last day, the appointed day. Mm -hmm. You can't have any variation in secondary causes they're culminating in that event. You have to have absolute precision. Now, I'm just telling you, on a logically, there is virtually no way out of this. They don't have any arguments. All they have is these, they parrot these little things and say, well, God looks through the corridors of time and then determines everything based on what he sees. This is called reasoning in a circle. It doesn't prove anything except for they don't know what they're talking about, and they refuse to acknowledge the sovereign God. And it's actually exalting man. Now, the Protestant reformers, this is one thing they had right, because they all believed in this. And somewhat surprisingly, most of the Anabaptists did, too, and they deteriorated over time, because the Baptists we have today running around, they don't have much of a historical connection, theologically or historically, with Anabaptism. It's just the name and the belief in believers' baptism. Other than that, I don't like a heck of a lot going on. Because apart from Reformed Baptists, who are numerically small, Reformed Baptists or Calvinist Baptists, um, they don't believe in the principles of the Protestant Reformation. So they're rejecting the greatest influx of truth from God in Christian history. That's going to be a problem. Um, The human mind struggles to understand predestination because there's a direct relationship with that and the problem of evil, which they're they're also not able to solve which has to do with the um, the conundrum of how you can have a perfectly holy and omnipotent God and have this um, everyday reality of uh, encroachment of evil. Because it's not staying the same, it's not getting better. It's getting worse. Yep. Yeah. Nothing's getting better. The only thing that's getting better in any significant category 
is technology which is being used for a diabolical purpose to accelerate human devolution. Now, do you ever hear anybody talk about this? No, because they're not, they're thinking. In the church, no. <laughs> they're not developed. They're totally ignoring conspiracies. If they hear the word Illuminati, which they're hearing more and more, the Illuminati wants them to hear that word, they're being psyoped about the, They're being prepped for what's coming. I'm just telling you right now, they're being, everybody's being prepped for a huge influx of information. And guess where it's coming from? God. Now, did you know the Bible actually teaches this? Now, watch this. Well, you've heard me on there. I don't talk about this as much as I used to, but Christians are ignoring Matthew 17, 11. You know, Jesus was coming down from the Mount of Transfiguration, and the disciples said, Why do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? And Jesus said, Elijah will come, you know, uh, future tense, and restore everything. He didn't qualify it. Now, Christians just moved right along. They don't pay attention to that. Now, they believe, based on what it says, I think, two verses later, that this refers to John the Baptist. You can have a whole Bible study on this. It's actually quite simple. Now, the reason they believe that is because they're ignoring uh, a massive uh, data point. John the Baptist was dead. He's not alive. So the best rabbit that you can pull out of a hat is that John the Baptist is going to come back and fulfill that event some point in the future and reincarnate. But they don't believe in that. So this shows you right there, they're not even thinking. Now, the reason they don't think is because it says, then the disciples understood that he was talking about John the Baptist. But didn't we disagree that he's dead? So you can look chronologically in the book of Matthew. He died earlier. Well, this is going to be a problem. <laughs> you know what I mean? Now, isn't it true that Christians don't talk about, you know, a reincarnated or resurrected uh, John the Baptist coming back to fulfill that? They don't do that, do they? So this proves that they're not even thinking. There's no thinking process. Now, there are things in the Bible, like in the book of Job, that are not true. We know for a fact that there are at least some things that Job's sympathizers said they are not true. They could be partial truths, not absolute truth. So now we know that not everything in the Bible is absolutely true. Well, guess what? Um, they were confused about that, too. Yes, that's what they believed. Uh, but they were wrong. Because, because, John was dead. So this is very interesting. In ancient Judaism, they had a belief, in contrast to Christianity, that an ancient patriarch could incarnate more than once. Christians don't believe that. They have this hobby horse proof text in Hebrews 9.27, which doesn't prove anything. And they never even figured this out. Because it says explicitly in, in Scripture, you have people that are dying more than once. Well, hold it here. Now it's not an absolute position anymore. So that goes right down the tubes. Now what other proof texts do you have? They don't have anything. They have nothing. So they don't know what they're talking about again, because they have uh, insufficient light from God. And now you've got to go back to the text and go, now hold it here. We can see right in the Gospels that they had a folk belief, whether it was true or not, that a patriarch could incarnate more than once. Okay? And Jesus never, he never rebuked this kind of thing. You know what I mean? I mean, he said, who do the people say that I am? And they said, some say Jeremiah. Well, what is that? That's a belief that an ancient patriarch could incarnate more, more than once. Okay, skip over all that. 
This is what Christians ignore. And this is there's people out there on the Internet that believe there's a new Elijah. They ignore this, too. This is what's really important. Jesus said that everything has to be restored, or as it says in the New American Standard, be reformed. This has to do with information. Now, the only way that this can um, happen is if you have initial corruption that precedes the restoration. And you know what that means? A loss of information, knowledge, and truth. Ask yourself this question. Is that what Christians believe about Christianity? No. Do they have an intelligent discussion about this? No. Do they have a uh, well-developed theology of this new Elijah? We already proved that. So they're not even qualified to exegete the text. They disqualify themselves. It's self-evident they're ignorant. So God is withholding truth from them. And as a general rule, he's doing that all through history. So you've got to figure that out and go, why is he doing this? Well, that's a different subject. It actually has to do with a corporate punishment, like I said before. It actually goes all the way back to Deuteronomy 28. Okay, so anyway, the Illuminati, they're experts on the Bible. They're actually Bible believers, and they have theologians that are vastly superior to ours. For one reason, they actually know what the truth is, and they actually know what happened with absolute precision uh, a long time ago because it's preserved without corruption at generation after generation. Absolute preservation with no loss of information. Now, somebody will say, that's a theory, Dave. Uh, go prove it wrong because you don't know their capabilities. So anyway, here's what we're talking about. They know that there's coming a massive influx of knowledge. Based on what? God's declared word in the Bible. Do you think they're going to make preparations for that? You better believe it. And that's what this has, all this flatterous propaganda has to do with. Matthew 17:11 is teaching many, many things. And one of the things that it's teaching is that our cosmology cannot possibly be true. Uh, a way to illustrate that somewhat crudely is if you're going to take that passage literally, Jesus doesn't even qualify it. So at the very least, he's saying all truth, you know, categorical truth, it has to be tainted. There's nothing pristine, because he's not putting a qualifier on it, okay? As far as it gets to individual truth, because all truth is linked to some level, he's not, he can't be talking about that, because then he'd be saying there's no truth at all. We know, we know that that's not true, okay? So, um, <clears throat> so everything is going to be restored. He didn't put a qualifier on it. And the Illuminati know that, and they're making preparations. And you can see, people are not looking. But if you understand this, you look around and go, well, so that's what's going on. You know what I mean? And they are revealing things that they have never revealed before because they're prepping people. Because they're going to have to admit that they lied to you on a massive scale. Let's say, for instance, about our cosmology. So that whole thing will crash. And they knew that. A long time ago, when they created the false one, they knew they would have to uh, admit that it was false. And I have a lab of theory that these, the lower managerial class, which we call you know, the Rothschilds and the, all these type of people, the banking cartel, uh, the Illuminati is going to be exposed on the lower levels, and they're going to have egg on their faces, and they're basically scapegoats that will be sacrificed to what I call the unknown supermen. Now, these people have to believe, because they, 
exists because they have the technology uh, to create super transhumans. And if they have the capability, they will do it unless God intervenes. And I look around, and I don't see God intervene on a whole lot. It looks like he wants to create a drama where he's empowering them to display his power by defeating them in the future. So I want to go back to a huge subject here real quick. This has to do with this false Israel over there, okay? Uh, because in dispensationalism, they posit the theory that there's actually an exodus that's going on right now in the start of 1948. That can't possibly be true. But if you can prove this infallibly, you can prove this wrong, if you think the text is trustworthy. trustworthy. Um, you go back to um, Ezekiel 20, and there you will see that God, when God gathers the people, he brings them to a single geographical location, which is outside of Israel. It says among the nations. Okay? We call it the place of protection. I believe it's the same place in uh, Revelation 12:14 that the woman flies to. Not flees, but flies, okay? And um, that hasn't happened yet. Everybody knows that. You know, all these Russian Jews that went to uh, Palestine, they didn't have a stopping-off place anymore. We know that. But that's what the text says. Secondly, it says, As I judged your fathers in the wilderness, notice how it's reaching back again to the first exodus, because this is a new exodus. He says, I will also judge you. And it actually says that if they don't hold up to a certain standard of holiness, he's going to kill them. Now ask yourself this question. Has that happened yet? No, it hasn't. So you have to always spiritualize the text, you see, which actually dispensationalists who believe in this fake exodus, they don't like to spiritualize the text. So we can easily back them into a corner. Okay, so here's the real problem. <clears throat> if you look farther in Exodus 20, it actually tells you where they're going after they leave the place of protection, which probably Goshen in Egypt was a historical prototype, it actually says they eventually come back to uh, to Israel, but he says not everyone makes it because God actually kills them because they're they're disobedient. So he's doing the same thing that he did before. Okay, now if you look at the wider context of Ezekiel, you go to the Battle of Gog and Magog, which people foolishly believe because they have this um, standardized Bible prophecy from the Illuminati. Do you really think? that left-behind belief system is not from the Illuminati because it's the, it's the most popular belief. In a system of control that's proven by the uh, artificial night sky, the standard beliefs, like spherical earth, evolution, left-behind theology, promoted in the media, which is controlled, it will always be false. So ask yourself this question. Do you think the Illuminati would be sufficiently motivated to um, promote a false view of Bible prophecy? Well, of course they would. All information is propaganda to them. They'd be greatly interested. They do the same thing with Nostradamus, by the way, in a different way. So now all we have to do, that now that we're thinking straight, that's what I call it, because we have a sufficiently conspiratorial mind, all we have to do is look around and go, hey, where is it? Well, it's right in front of you. It's called Left Behind Series. From the Illuminati. Now, if you actually investigate the authors, <laughs> guess what's going to happen? Oh, same old show. So, ask yourself this question. Do you think that the typical evangelical Christian is investigating the background of those authors 
to see if there are diabolical Illuminati agents. Well, guess what? It gets worse. You can't even prove they even wrote these books because it's already been proven that most popular Christian works are ghost-written. And when Hal Lindsey was approached on this subject, he actually admitted, well, you know, I didn't actually write uh, The Late Great Planet Earth, which is one of the greatest pieces of propaganda about the Bible prophecy in world history. And that's true. That came out late, late. I mean, you talk about influence, and what are they pushing? Christian Zionism. You go back to the... Um, the Holocaust, which I hold to a middle position, I don't believe in the extreme fakery thing. You know, nothing happened. There was no concentration camps. Blah, blah, blah. We actually don't know for certain because we weren't there. The environment is controlled, and so anyway, I believe that that was done to some degree to create worldwide sympathy for what we'll call Christian Zionism, which is unbiblical. Again, I said there's a, there's a biblical Zionism, but this is a false Zionism, because that's exactly what it did. Why do we always have to sympathize with the Jews? Because I'm saying that's manufactured, and guess what? They're not even Jews! Ask yourself this question. Do you think that Satan would be sufficiently motivated to create fake Jews, false Jews? Of course. To confuse us about the biological identity of God's people. Of course he would. So now let's look around. What do we see? What does the media identify as a Jew? Somebody with short stature, olive skin, dark hair, and a hooked nose. And somewhat curiously, these are the people that um, Hitler, supposedly six million of them, which is a cult number, which was first declared, you're probably aware of this, after World War I. They're just coming out and say, well, this here's what we're going to do, and uh, we don't really care Actually, about it. Was, it was prior to World War I, I found new newspaper clips out of New York that number. Yeah. Seriously. That's a cult number. And the first thing you do is you say, well, you know, they tell you that uh, the Roman legions attacked uh, Jerusalem in 66 AD and that the temple was destroyed in 70 AD. the The first dates that you reject are those. You say, okay, I don't know what happened. I wasn't there. But what they tell us about 66 AD, that that's got to be the wrong date. But that's what they when they said it happened. The same thing with 70 AD. It could never possibly be true. Because that's what they said. I'm not going to tell you the truth. It could be 71. It could be 68. Who knows? We don't know. So you've got these arrogant preterists out there. They think they've got it all figured out. They're going to stop well, everything about, in the first century. About, and they're, they're uh, quoting 70 AD as if, as if this is something that is like a fact. That's delusional to do that. Go ahead. What about the age of uh, Christ being 33? I believe it was 39. That's the secret of the uh, number 39. That's just just my opinion. Uh, there's there's basically uh, there's two ages, you know, 30 and 33. And I believe that they're they're using both the numbers 39 and 33. Let me tell you something. They're lying to you. Um, there's esoteric things that are going on out there. We'll call it like tier two propaganda. Most people don't know that, according to their version of reality, they don't come out and trumpet this, you know, in the controlled media. But according to what they're telling you, Jerusalem is actually on the 33rd degree parallel. So this creates elaborate killing of the king rituals, which you can trace back to the Golden Bough. That it was an elaborate 
ritual, the black magicians, to gain power for themselves. They actually waited for him to come to Jerusalem so they could murder him on the 33rd degree parallel. That sounds pretty good, doesn't it? Do you like that one? You want me to crash that? Guess what? That only works on a spherical Earth. If the Earth is not a Hollywood sphere, then uh, the latitude, longitude is going to be different. You see that? Another massive assumption. Now you can see that you've got to spend years trying to sift through all this massive deception. And I, I've actually said that nobody has the time to do it. If you had a committee, you couldn't do it. Nobody can figure it all out. Uh, God made it crooked, and he's the only one that can straighten it out. It would take a supernatural, divine act. Okay, now let's go back to the false Israel, and we can see they're lying to us. Okay, so all I'll, you got to do... I'll, I'll, just because I don't know how much more time we have here. Well, let me, I can just illustrate this. We can go. Cause well, really I want to just keep on going, but... Um, i I got to finish the thing about the false Israel okay. real quick. Okay. okay. Go back and look at the text in Ezekiel 38. And look at the wider context of Ezekiel, because Ezekiel is actually chronological. There's no question it's chronological from actually about 34 all the way to the end of the book. Okay? There's maybe some minor difficulties that you've got to reconcile. No, it's definitely chronological from 40 to 48. And I believe definitely from 37 onward. Uh, excuse me. No, actually 34. Yeah, it should be a problem, really. Okay. So what is stated in Ezekiel 20 is actually expanded upon historically. So it's absolutely critical to understand that he's describing a literal exodus. Because you've got to use the, the, the wider context of Scripture to prove that that's not a literal event described there in Ezekiel 20. You can't do that. You can't prove that. You know why? Because this is an event that hasn't happened. When you have events that haven't happened, we don't have certainty. There's Bible prophecies that are actually there for a certain generation, and when you move past that event, you can look back and go, aha! But we don't really have an understanding until the event occurs. Scholars will actually put this, point this out. Okay? You actually, and sometimes you need the event to occur. And then the event actually clarifies Scripture which a lot of Protestants don't feel comfortable about, because you can't have everything outside the Bible interpreting Scripture for us. Well, actually, scholars don't hold to that view. That's a layperson's opinion. So anyway, if you look at Ezekiel 38, it's actually telling you that they, specifically, they just came back from an exodus. Go look it up. I'm outside walking around because my, my roommate, he's on graveyard shift, and he just lay down. So I looked at the text up. Now it says... <clears throat> I figured that. I can hear the plane. It says that they are a peaceful and unsuspecting people, which is the diamet diametrically opposite. Remember I talked about the 180-degree line from what you have over there in this armed encampment. This is true. Uh, are these people peaceful and unsuspecting? You could theorize that they have the most militarized nation in the world qualitatively. Okay? Now it also says that they live in a land of unwalled villages. How can you possibly reconcile that with what you have over there? Now, what I'm saying is, is that um, these dispensationalists, delusionalists, are placing the Battle of Gog and Magog at the beginning 
of a seven-year tribulation period. You can't possibly reconcile that with Scripture. Now, we already know we're being lied to because it says right in the Bible they have to go to place protection first, then they have to repent, and people are going to be killed along the way. Has that happened yet? No. So you have to, are you, you know, you got to ask a person, are you comfortable with spiritualizing all that? Because that is what you're going to have to do to pull that rabbit out of the hat. Now, how many people are willing to do that? Because I'm not. Okay, so the wider context describes this exodus. And they live there for a while, and then they are uh, attacked. And that's the Battle of Gog and Magog. So the Battle of Gog and Magog takes place after the land is repopulated, after the exodus. Now, the reason why people don't see this is you have what's called a parenthesis. A parenthesis can be long or it can be relatively short. And this would be the length of the Exodus itself, which I actually believe is probably 40 years. can't prove that. They're not seeing that parenthesis. Now, we know why they're not seeing it, because they don't see a literal Exodus. And you've got to remember, replacement theology, century after century, that's a historical Christian position, which is wrong. They didn't have an explanation for a literal Exodus in Ezekiel 20. They could not interpret that passage. Do you know that there's a lot of Bible commentaries that actually referred um, the Battle of Gog and Magog to um, wars with uh, Islamic nations, like around, you know, the year 1200, something like that? And these are good Bible commentators, by the way. You go, what? You've got to be kidding me. Yeah. Isn't that something? Completely far off the mark. You know what I mean? There you go. So what does that tell us about this um, this nation over there? It's an artificial construct from international bankers, specifically the Rothschild banking cartel. That's a provable fact. You can follow the money trail. No one can refute it. People don't even try. They just ignore it. I had a brother that went to a local liberal Lutheran university, and he came home and surprisingly told me, well, well the professor was talking about this, how the Rothschild banking family was the primary influence between um, establishing the, the Palestinians. I, I say Palestinian state because it's in the land of Palestine. Uh, you know, it's not a country, by the way. It's a, it's a state. But this is not hard to figure out. You can even learn this in a classroom. Ignorant Christians who have been propagandized by Illuminati um, disinfo that has to do with eschatology. They don't know whether they're coming or going. They're not even critically thinking. What they're doing is going with a majority view that will always be false, just like evolution and a spherical earth. You don't have to investigate. You're going to go, okay, that left behind, that's got to be false. Now I'm going to look around. What is the truth? Good question. So I'll leave you with that, man. Hey, I want to have you on my show, too, sometime, so. Oh, absolutely. Uh, I mean, you can come on a regular basis. You don't have to have, like, one appearance. (laughs) <laughs> but hang out with us, man. Well, let me know when you're going to have a show, and we'll we can always try to arrange it. So, I'm yeah. a busy man myself, so with uh, my son and. Yeah, I'll stop by on occasion. You can invite me anytime. Not like an official show like oh. tonight, but just a, you know, like some color commentary. I want us to have a couple. More, I want us to have a couple more official shows. We've shows. We've only covered the surface of. Uh, discussion here. So. Yeah, we need to go into detail about this stuff. You know, we're going into detail about these things in the background. 
like the artificial yeah. night sky. It's getting technical. Well, that's fine. I, that's what I want. So, yeah. before you, uh, you, you, uh, we uh, end the show here. Uh, give folks, uh, do me the favor and uh, ex- tell folks again about your show. And uh, uh, my my show is the only show in the world. I've never said this. Uh, that makes a claim that we actually talk about. Uh, Deep theology and heavy conspiracies, and we actually back it up and prove it. We also are the only show in the world that consistently talks about ideas and concepts that no one else talks about. And that sounds like, you know, maybe a, a egocentric boast, but it's true. I've never had anybody say that, disagree that, you know, you guys are always talking about that. I never heard this before. So it's not a question whether you heard it before, and you can see that tonight. It's a self-evident fact. People are not hearing this information. And so the real question is, is it true or not? So, like I said earlier, this is a good show to listen to things you haven't heard before so you can try to figure out for yourself whether it's true because you're not hearing it. And when you make a decision about, you know, what is real, your perception of reality, because that's what truth is in my estimation, reality correctly defined, you got to have all the information on the tra- on the table. If you're lacking significant information, you commonly cannot make a correct judgment. So we can see over and over again. I'm illustrating. There's all kinds of discussions that are not happening, and suppressed information eventually becomes obvious. This information is suppressed. So the real question is: Is it important? And actually, it's self-evident that it is. There you go. So, and the name of your show again is. Out of Darkness into the Light, and we have a secondary podcast on TalkShoe, which is not on iTunes yet, called Out of Darkness into the Light 2A. And then we also have two older podcasts, which are still on iTunes with lots and lots of uh, downloads. Not everything is uh, in the standard uh, Out of Darkness into the Light podcast. They do have some older material on there, and iTunes is downloadable, which has a superior sound quality because the, the files are not compressed like on TalkShoe. Uh, but there's a lot of uh, a lot of audio though on iTunes. So cool. Don't All hang right. up on don't don't hang up on me yet. Um, okay. Just I'm just gonna end the show over here a little bit and uh, make a few comments. So uh, as he said, as David said, out of darkness into light. Check it out on TalkShoe. Uh, Dave's show along with. Um, Chris Kindle's show, um, Oaks Busters, um, Call, and uh, Talk Shoe are basically the only one so far that I uh, would recommend. <laughs> Not to say that I'm all that great and that, that my opinion matters that much, but uh, and there's not really there's not a lot out there, in my opinion, as far as really trying cut to the chase and, and explain what's really going on in this world. And um, so, yeah, I really did enjoy this tonight, Dave. And so, yeah. By the way, folks, tomorrow I will be having Johnny Cerucci on again, the author of Illuminati Ex- Exposed, or, yeah, was it? Illuminati Unmasked. He also got... Uh, his own show called Resistant Rising. So, anyways, we'll, we ironically we'll be talking about his perspectives, his learning about the, the what we know is the state of Israel and whether it's mm-hmm. biblical or not. 
Yeah, he's on Blog Talk Radio. So. Yeah, Johnny's hardcore, man, and uh, he's I, I consider him my brother, man. I like the fact that that we all can come from different. Uh, also, real quick, I'm on another show on Block Talk. It's called Full Fledged Radio, and uh, I've, I've, I've uploaded um, only like two shows, but I've done a lot on there. You can put Contrarius in a search engine, and you'll find a lot of them, but not all of them. But you have to go through the archives on the Full Fledged. It's actually called Full Fledged Reality Show now. Cool. So, so I, I, I value, you know, I think it's really important in order to grow and to understand. Not only you know theology and the deep, mm-hmm. the heavy conspiracy that you talk about, but uh, yeah, to hear other people's points of views. I think I'm on two other shows. Uh, there's another one on talk show called uh, True Lies Reality Crash, and but I basically have the same audio on mine. Uh, and then I'm on another one called uh, Spirit Cleaner Radio. Uh, he's got quite a bit of my audio on there as well. Cool. Mm-hmm. That's on a speaker, but not on iTunes, as far as I know. Right. And then Thursday night, folks, for those who will be who are listening now, and those the majority will be listening in the future here, uh, the next couple of days, um, we'll be having James Arnett from JamesJapan.com, and we will be talking about his latest hitchhiking adventures. He's an amazing man. He's in his 60s. And uh, last year, he clocked over 14,000 miles hitchhiking throughout uh, Japan. And one of the things I want to talk to him about is about Fukushima and give it a latest update on the hoax of the nuclear, supposed nuclear disaster. If you haven't known, if you haven't heard, folks, a couple of years ago, the people started moving back into that area and last time we talked, he said there were people busily raising their, uh, you know, doing their farms, raising their um, cattle and livestock. And it turns out that once again, another lie of the many endless lies that come out of the satanic system. So we'll be talking to, uh, I will be talking to James Arnott, if you're interested. He's, I think he's a very interesting man. Who has a very interesting story. So, well, uh, with that, I say God bless. And take care. Like I said, they stay up. Don't. Mm-hmm. Okay. With the Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.